Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. And we are back with another topic episode, and today we are continuing to look at grief. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Good time. Yeah, and, and I also want to say, like, this is a heavy topic, but we're going to try to not... Like giggle. bum you the fuck out. We're try not to <laughs> like, giggle the whole time. We're gonna try to strike right. a balance somewhere between giggling and bumming you the fuck mm-hmm. out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, and like sobbing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So today we are talking about grief. Um, and we talked about kind of the fundamentals of what grief is in our episode on Friday the thirteenth. So please make sure to check that if you out if you have not already. Um. I know I'm biased because I feel like they're all my little episode babies and I just love each and every one of them. Mm -hmm. But I think that episode is one of my favorites that Mm -hmm. we've done so far. I think it was really thoughtful and it's on one of my favorite movies. Um, So make sure to check it out. It also dropped like in the middle of the will they won't they ever call this thing. So (laughs) if you missed it because you were stressing out like the rest of us, then just know that it is there. Um, And so we're not going to we're not going to do kind of like a broad overview. We're going to go a little deeper this time. We really did Um, hit it pretty hard and like why the five stages are outdated versus the dual mode oh all that to say too though you can still listen to this episode if you have not listened to that one like we're not spoiling yeah, anything. there's there's not really uh it's like <laughs> it's like an anthology series you'll mm-hmm. you'll get something out of watching the previous season but you don't exactly. need to right but just know that that episode is there also with more information about grief Um, But today we're tackling another movie from the lens of grief. We are talking about Karen Kusama's The Invitation. Will you accept? (laughs) (laughs) Don't do it, bro. (laughs) I know. Seems creepy. Seems too good to be true, huh? (laughs) Um, Anyways, I know this is one a lot of listeners love, and it definitely fits this topic. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, especially like kind of gathering together Mm -hmm. with lots of people. Um, I think with Thanksgiving and other holidays looming, a lot of us are going to be dealing with reminders of loved ones we've lost and I know the holidays can be particularly hard for that reason. Today we're going to talk a little bit more about how to interact with friends or family who might be grieving Mm -hmm. themselves. Um, So we're going to look at what it's like to experience that but also how you can support someone who is experiencing that Um, because I think we all want to help but it's really hard to know what to say or do in those situations and I think what we find is there's really not a right way. You know, mm-hmm. or a wrong. Yeah, I mean, there's some wrong ways, but not necessarily yeah. like one right way. <laughs> so we'll right, go over the wrong yeah. ways for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. But before we jump in, we're going to give a short synopsis of the movie. So here's your spoiler warning. Spoiler warning, because we have to talk about spoiler the Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> we need a, so, a klaxon. Like, yeah, I was going to say, we need klaxon. a sound effect that's like... Pew, pew, pew. Or like the sound of something rotting. I don't... Let's just... I don't want to talk... 
anymore. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> that's too bad because we just started. <laughs> would Laura, would you accept the invitation to read this synopsis? <laughs> I accept. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I feel like I should have a rose to hand you through Zoom. Yes, I know. I uh, we'll we'll post that <laughs> on on Instagram. You handing me a virtual rose. Oh. And then I will be your your bride. <laughs> you can't escape it, Jen. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm all, I'm gonna launch I'm gonna launch into this here synopsis. Would you attend a dinner party with your friends if it was hosted by your ex-wife who tried to kill herself after the son you had together died? Oh, and it was being held in the house where all the aforementioned tragedy went down. Hmm. For well, our protagonist, the answer is a resounding yes. And he's also decided to bring his extremely accepting girlfriend, Kira, along for the ride. At the party, in an unsurprising turn, the house does trigger flashbacks for Will. His ex-wife, Eden, her new husband, David, and a, and a cast of assorted friends all act like nothing is totally horribly weird. Making matters worse, it turns out that David and Eden are part of a cult called The Invitation, where emotions are negotiable and you can live your best life by just letting your pain go. An MLM style... They brought everyone together to learn all about it. Yay. Ah, it's great. <laughs> this is what I want to be dealing with. Uh, it's, a, it's a cult and a pyramid scheme all in one. Yes. Right. The best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. Everything you love. Two great flavors that taste great together. Um, <laughs> what? Okay. David. Dur <laughs> so d during this MLM initiation, David plays a video of a woman dying and introduces them to his two not at all creepy friends, Sadie and Pruitt. <laughs> It's very uncomfortable, but the wine is really good, so the group has to stick around and not immediately leave. Will grows more and more certain that something is wrong, causing several scenes that make everyone uncomfortable. Poor them. His friends treat him as rude and inconsiderate rather than a human, <laughs> human being who is obviously hurting. Things come to a head when David and Eden pour out another round of fancy wine. Having finally had enough, Will smashes all but one glass, and as the sole friend who drank it dies, we realize the wine was poisoned. The cult has planned a mass murder-suicide as the climax of the night's festivities. David, Sadie, and Pruitt attack the remaining guests. While trying to escape from the house, Will and Kira are attacked by Pruitt before Kira awesomely beats him to death. You'll love to see it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they overhear David reassuring a complicit but fearful Eden that it's almost over, and only by completing this plan can they stop hurting and ascend to the next life. Eden shoots Will, then shoots herself in the abdomen. A.K.A. the most painful way to kill yourself. David is stabbed to death by Tommy, the only other party guest still alive. As she dies, Eden apologizes to Will, saying she just misses her son so much and this was the only way she could see out of the pain. She asks to be taken outside and dies in the same place as her son. As they stand outside, Kira and Will notice a red lantern David placed in the yard, which we understand to signal the murder party. Looking across the hills, they see the night is dotted with hundreds of red lanterns, and they begin to hear screams and sirens. Oh, no! no. Oh, no! It's the invitationing! Oh, yeah. It's the invitationing! <laughs> oh, I love that synopsis. Thank you. And you as well. We, we wrote it together, as That's we do. That's true. <laughs> That's true. You always make it so much more fun, though. <laughs> So all um, I do is I, I, I put in stupid noises <laughs> and one-liners. Oh, yep. No, but it's great. Um, so let's move into our feelings check. Um, this is the time when we unpack how we experience this movie and kind of identify the feelings that it brings up. 
So I don't know about you folks, but this movie bro- brought up a lot of feelings for me. Um, so let's go around and share what our first experience with this movie was and how it made us feel when we watched it. Laura, would you care to start? So I'm pretty sure, <laughs> once again, the first time I saw this movie... <laughs> I think it like I think they put it on Netflix years ago. I, th- I want to mm-hmm. say around. I, I feel like it was 2016, based on my memory of watching it in my tiny, very tiny old apartment. I I think this time around, I liked it a lot more than I did initially. I think I didn't watch it very closely the first time around, so I I came to appreciate it a lot more watching it for the show. So. I will say I love the aesthetics and tension of the film. I think the pacing is great, uh, and it really does ratchet up the, the sense of impending doom. Uh, I do still find a lot of the friend characters grating and find it a little hard to believe anyone would stick around for the food to be served in this party situation. <laughs> I know mm-hmm. I sure as shit would not. But there's still enough artfulness in the filmmaking for me to get over finding the premise a little flimsy and some of the performances overwrought. Um, it's just some of the friends... Ugh, I just I can't stand yeah. it. The ending is an absolute stunner. Uh, ultimately, it does leave me feeling very sad. It's an incredibly sad narrative. I think you get around some of it with the high octane thrills of the last act. But, you know, when you as I was sitting and reflecting on it, I was just like, shit, this is a sad fucking story. So that's how it makes me feel. Mike, what about you? Yeah, my first memory of this movie, um, we played it at the Telluride Horror Show I want to say it was back in 2015. I'm one of the hosts of that festival. And this is one of those movies that I, you know, always Karen Kasama, who's such a brilliant filmmaker. And there was a lot of like um, positive press for this. And we actually had uh, John Carroll Lynch in attendance. He did a Q and a with a, um, with one of the, uh, one of our special guest hosts that year. So he kind of came on to talk about the craft of this movie. And it's funny because right around the time that he was appearing on American Horror Story and a lot of people wanted to talk about um, his role as like the clown in that show. And he's like, man, I really just want to kind of talk about like this movie. But um, it was really interesting to have him there. I absolutely, and I actually remember where I was sitting. Like I could just picture so much of like, the little alcove and really being absolutely like sucked into everything about this movie. There's the Alfred Hitchcock theory of suspense where very early in a movie you show the audience a bomb and then you just let them know it's going to go off. And now you're waiting as an audience member to watch that bomb to go off. And Kusama does that so well here, except Mm -hmm. she kind of shows you a bomb but maybe it's not a bomb and you're questioning that and then it goes on for what just seems like an excruciating length of time and what i mean by that is not like this movie is over long but you are absolutely in knots by the time the shit hits the fan and that mm-hmm. is and i tied looked last night i pa- it's about an hour and 17 minutes in to about an hour and 35 minute long movie where the stuff really goes down mm-hmm. everything up to that point is just a master class and how do you execute tension for mm-hmm. so many reasons whether it's these people are giant weirdos and why doesn't anyone recognize that or the dynamic between will and eden just being so painful um, or just Will getting uh, lost in his own head and being back in this environment. I absolutely 
love this movie. And that last shot, which I know we'll get into, is just a stunner. I definitely think it works for our purposes, you know, because I think it gives us a lot of fodder to talk about. Um, And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about this movie is I think it's the kind of movie that I can really like sink my teeth into analytically, you know, which is like my jam. Mm -hmm. Um, I first heard about this back when I first started listening to horror podcasts. I think it was Modern Horrors and they had recommended this. Um, And it was really before I started to really think critically about a lot of horror. And I think before I had really just kind of approached it as a fan. And then once I started kind of getting my feet wet and hearing a lot of people like really analyze horror, that's when I kind of fell in love with doing that myself. But I think I watched this and like Laura, you said, I don't think I was following it that closely and I don't think I was quite ready for what it was doing. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought it was fine. I thought it was okay. I also don't think I totally took it seriously because I was like, oh, oh, it's the OC's brother. He's in here because that's what I knew Logan Marshall Green from. And I'm watching it now. And after seeing Upgrade, I'm like, he's fantastic. I want him to be in everything. He's a really great performer. Yeah. Yeah, In in this, but it's so understated. And I think I also like had like a one and a three-year-old at the time. So I think my attention was a little bit divided. And so Mm -hmm. I don't think it really worked on me the way that I, I did this time. Um. I don't think I really enjoy this movie. Like this was, this is a hard watch for me, especially as like a really empathetic person. Um, There's so much that's uncomfortable here and really like upsetting narrative. And it's, it's hard for me to watch in a lot of ways, but I feel like it's really kind of, and I don't even really get that catharsis, you know, it just really, it's just hard for me to watch. It's not one that I think I'll go back to over and over again, but man, like it, it gets into that deep level of understanding a certain thing, a certain feeling I have that not many other movies can do. And I really appreciate that. I think it's really, really well made. It's just hard for me to, it's one of those movies. It's hard for me to say that I enjoy it, but I think it is extremely effective and it's a really great movie. It also has, what's the, who, What's the guy's name who is in, who's David? Who plays David? Michael Huisman. Huisman? It's got, I call him Sexbeard because, <laughs> because he was on Game of Thrones and he was basically, his character was just like hooking up with Danny all the time. And mm. so the recapper I was writing, oh, call, he reading called him Sexbeard. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, so I was watching him and, and um, I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. Um, and I think he's great in this too. Like everybody, I think it's I think it's really well acted. I think the characters are not necessarily written. Like we we're gonna get into the characters, but I think everyone is really kind of committed to what this is, and I feel like there's a lot of heart in it. And knowing like seeing other movies that Karen Kusama has done, like you can mm-hmm. feel the level of care that she brought to it, mm-hmm. you know, which I really appreciate. Everyone is distinguished. I mean, the thing about mm-hmm. this movie is like we talk about sometimes like these ensemble movies where everyone feels the same, yeah, or that's that true. they're just or they're just like stock tropes. Mm-hmm. Everyone here is given something. Yeah, totally. I think yeah, I think even if I don't like them, they are definitely fleshed out characters with motivations. We learn a lot about them without 
too much exposition. I mean, there are some moments that are a little exposition-y for me, but I think given that this is like a chamber drama, right? It almost feels like a mm-hmm. stage play or something where, yeah. you know, they're in one location having a lot of conversations and dialogue. That is really hard to pull off well. And mm-hmm. I think it, it's it's something that I'm not always a huge fan of, but I think they, they do a really good job of it here. I think when I first watched it, I had been watching a lot of these like mumble gore type movies as they call them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan of mumble core, but I think mm-hmm. there are occasional on- entries into the horror genre of this style that really do a good job. It's just, I don't, it, I'm very skeptical of it at first. And so I yeah. think mm-hmm. that's where I was at mentally when I first mm-hmm. saw it. And I think this ha- kind of has a lot in common with some of those types of movies. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think what sets it apart is like a, the mumble gore movies tend to be like, I don't want to say low rent in terms of aesthetic overall, mm-hmm. um, but like there's a level of craftsmanship yes. that Kusama brings to the table here that maybe like a baghead, which is a fun movie and I really <laughs> enjoy it, or a murder party, um, mm-hmm. which I would put under that category. You know, again, like if there's things I really like about that. This yeah. is like Kusama really elevates yes, everything. Totally. Yeah. In this. And I think I paying attention to it more, I definitely am I'm on board with that. Mm-hmm. It feels very scripted. A lot of times those movies feel like they just let the actors riff. Mm-hmm. And right. I hate that Which, shit. I hate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I hate yeah, it. I feel like there's like a one in five chance that it's gonna be fantastic. Right. And exactly. Those mm-hmm. other four times are Unless wow. you're written it's written and directed by Larry David. I'm not sure how good mm-hmm. it's gonna be. <laughs> like, right. But like yeah. we, every now and then you get a movie like Creep and Creep Two oh. from yes. Mark Duplass that really mm-hmm. work in that. That's because yeah. he's really good, that but that's what I mean is like unless yeah. you are that good and Mark Duplass mm-hmm. I think is that good, like uh-huh. it's good. I think it's an it's a style that people see that's easy to imitate. And it's imitated poorly over and over again. But occasionally, mm-hmm. like I think um, your next creep. Yes. Those are like mm-hmm. the really good ones. And then there's a host of horrible ones. That I hate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 One of the things that I find really effective about this movie and why it's really uncomfortable for me to watch in a lot of ways is because I think the way she approaches the violence in this movie feels like really realistic to me. You know, I think you can look at like the people that survive too, and like another movie, like a more studio esque movie would have Kira be the only survivor, you know, and kind of lean into that slasherness. And it just feels like the scene where Kira is killing um, Pruitt is so affecting to me. And it's like you have those dreams or those fantasies where it's like if somebody were attacking me, could I actually hit them hard enough to kill them? Like, would I be able to defend myself? And I think you see this is maybe the closest I've ever seen to that feeling kind of Mm -hmm. on the screen. Like she keeps having to hit him. He keeps coming back, but it's not coming back like Billy and scream. It's like what a person who is dying would do. And you are Mm -hmm. still confronted with the fact that he's not dead yet. Yeah. And it's, it's like similar to like the deer at the beginning or what have you. I mean, it's, it's very like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it is very, very real and very visceral. And I think it kind of reminds me of like, it's a little in the vein of a Michael Haneke film, like funny games or something Uh like that, where it's just so real that you're mm-hmm. like, Ugh. <laughs> like watching right, it, like, yeah, stressed well, because out. like you're, she's like focusing on their suffering, and I read an article that pointed that out that I'm gonna link, um, because she's like when when David dies too, like he gets stabbed once, and then we just watch him die, mm-hmm. and it's and I mean mm-hmm. it's kind of a parallel to the video that we see earlier, but it's like we really focus on like the characters and who they are, and I feel like in that way, that's kind of a lot of times what a female director will bring to a movie that you wouldn't necessarily always see from a male gaze which Mm -hmm. I really appreciate I also find myself 
so frustrated by the way they treat Will. And yeah. the way, mm-hmm. like, there's the horror trope of nobody believing the woman who says everything, f- this feels weird. And I think this is kind of one of those rare occurrences where it's a man saying that. It's a man really struggling with his emotions, mm-hmm. which I, like, normalize therapy for men, normalize men talking about their feelings. Like, I really love that we see so much of that. And that it's almost gender reversed where normally I think you would see a man kind of repressing his feelings and like pretending everything is okay. And here I think we see the opposite of that, which I really, really appreciate. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's great. I just, it's just hard for me to watch. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. You can acknowledge something is really good or that you appreciate it without literally enjoying the process of watching it. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I also have a son who is six, so I, it's impossible for me to watch this without thinking that, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, understandable. Um, anyways, do we have any other feelings that we would like to share about this or shall we move on? Let us move on. Let's, I'm good. will you accept the invitation to move on? I'm going to do that every time we have a transition. <laughs> I, I accept. <laughs> I should have written out like fancy invitation cards like, <laughs> in like cursive or something. Uh, so like I said earlier, we talked about some of the basics of grief in our Friday the 13th episode. And today I think we're really going to dig a little deeper. Um, we're going to talk specifically about how you can help someone who is grieving. Um, and I think, like I said at the beginning, I think we all have the best intentions, but it's just really hard to know what to say and how to help. And I think sometimes that can lead us to be afraid to do anything, Mm -hmm. which is not good either. Um, so Mike, can you help us learn how to help others? I mean, I can try. No pressure, Mike. Um, Right. Save us, Mike. (laughs) No pressure here. Um, Should I write it in an invitation? Would that make it easier? Just help me in cursive. Yeah. Please help me. I am in hell. Yeah. I'll put a pirate sticker on it. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, I think one of the things with grief is there's this helplessness that comes with Mm -hmm. it, that grief is one of those emotions that eventually it's inevitable that at some point we're all going to be grieving for someone or something. Um, There's just no way around it yet, especially in Western culture, we have these notions of death is a taboo still. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that we openly talk about. It's something we shelve. It's something we keep to ourselves. And I think because of that, we struggle so hard to really talk with others or really how do I help someone that needs my help right Mm -hmm. now? And I think it really boils down to like, what would I want? Mm -hmm. If this was happening to me, it's the golden rule. I think in some ways, almost as simple as that. Um, But what I wanted to do today, it's a little bit different rather than do like a clinical definition or, process or like here's a treatment plan that I would do with somebody. Uh, maybe we'll talk about the tangled ball of emotions later. But <laughs> but I wrote out some specific things that you can do with a person who's grieving. And look, right now, by the, we've lost about a quarter of a million people in the United States alone. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I only mention the United States is I don't know the worldwide number mm-hmm. off the top of my head. A life lost in the United States is every bit as valuable or has the same value as a life lost in China, Mm -hmm. as in Africa, as in Canada, 
as in South America, like there's, we're all persons. Like this is what we're going through right now affects us on a global level. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us are going to be grieving, especially this year is like, there's going to be not only empty seats at the dinner table for Thanksgiving and Christmas and Hanukkah and all the holidays because of just the fact that like, it's not safe right now to have, these large gatherings, but also because so many of us know someone that has lost their life to this pandemic mm-hmm. that we're going through. So I kind of wanted to talk about what what can we do if we want to help someone who's grieving. And I would say the first, if you really want to help someone that's grieving, be specific. Saying, I'm going to come over and I'm going to do a few loads of laundry for you. I'm going to make the grocery store run for you. I'm going to make sure that your dog goes for her daily walk. I'll do the carpool for you. If there are bills you need me to write the checks for, I will write those checks for you. We'll go over them together. And the reason I'm saying be specific, people are much more likely to respond to a concrete offer of assistance rather than like a generic or broad request to see what you can do for help. And look, I think we all want to help people, but sometimes we're not sure what we can Mm -hmm. do. The person who's grieving feels overwhelmed and they're fighting a whole mess of emotions. Last time we talked about the dual stages of grief, and we're not just talking about the emotional loss that comes with grief, but there's the physical loss, the comfort of that person next to you in bed, if it's your partner. The social loss... But there's also practical losses, childcare, mm-hmm. errands, daily routines you have to do that all of a sudden that division of labor is gone. Asking somebody, can you let me know what I can do to help you? It's well-intentioned, but it puts the onus on the person grieving to come up with something when they might not have the capacity to do so at that mm-hmm. moment. Absolutely. And that sounds, I feel like that sounds like something that doesn't like logically make sense, but like there's a level of that puts the burden on the person mm-hmm. who's grieving to provide a safe place for the person to help mm-hmm. rather than just accepting the help, you know? And I remember, I mean, just when I lost my dad, I remember feeling exactly that completely overwhelmed. I had this huge list of tasks to get done. And I wasn't about to ask anyone to do these specific things, nor, but if anybody said, can I do anything for you? I just was like, I'll maybe, uh, uh, I just like shorted my brain out. So I think Mm -hmm. that makes complete sense. Yeah. Because you don't know where Mm -hmm. to pick. Like there's, yes, there are so many things you can do for me. I don't even know where to start. And I think like you said, short circuiting is like the perfect way to describe Mm -hmm. it. How many times have you been asked, like, do you have any questions on, like, a topic that you maybe have heard for, like, just the first Mm -hmm. time? And it's like, I don't even know enough about the topic to know what to ask. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, so how would I know what questions to ask at this point where if someone has a specific, like, we discussed this, what more do you need to know about Mm -hmm. it? It's kind of similar to those lines. Like, sometimes we don't know exactly what help it is that we need right yeah sometimes you may have forgotten about those mundane Mm -hmm. things oh I need to go to the grocery this week oh that would be helpful and I want to say too because there's a part of me while I think this is a fantastic suggestion and something that would really have helped me there's a part of me that has a lot of really 
um, complicated boundaries that kind of brushes against someone saying, I'm going to come over and do this for you. Mm -hmm. I feel like if you're offering that kind of help, you need to be open to the person saying, this is not helpful for me. Of course. Could you do this instead? You know, and I think that, and you know, I I don't know. I don't want to diminish what we're talking about, but I feel like just in general, we need like, don't center yourself in mm-hmm. this offer mm-hmm. for help. Like if that's not I, what they want, th- that's not yeah. an, something you need to be offended by or get defensive about, you know? Totally. And, I, and I think the example you just gave there is so good because let's say that you don't want someone in your kitchen cooking a meal, like your kitchen is sacrosanct or your kitchen is your, your self-care, like baking yeah. bread or making a meal is your self-care to get through. Giving someone a concrete example and saying, like, I'm going to come over and make you your meals for the week. Saying, actually, I don't want you to do that. But what I would like you to do is this thing instead. Uh-huh. Um, it could trigger, it might be easier than, like, what's a generic thing I can do to help. Mm-hmm. This next one, like, this is something that I think all of us say or have said. And to a certain extent, it's true. But I caution against using it as a way of thinking you're helping someone. Telling them, like, I know how you feel it often does more harm than good. And it's true. We all experience grief in our lives. And that's one of the emotions that really bond us together as humans. But the way that we experience grief is completely unique to each individual. What we can say is it sounds a bit more vague, um, but taking that opposite tack to what we've just kind of talked about right there, like saying, I can imagine what you're going through right now, because that is true. Unless you're a complete sociopath, like (laughs) doesn't experience feelings, you have felt what others have felt. But putting it this way, I can imagine it. It gives the other person that opportunity to discuss how they're feeling and maybe like put identifying markers on what they're actually feeling and opening up a broader conversation if they're there to listen, if if they're there to be able for you to listen and empathize with them. Because like, and I say this to everybody I work with, like, I will never know you better than you know yourself. Mm -hmm. If I spent 24 hours a day with you, seven days a week for the next 10 years, I still don't live inside your head. So saying, like, telling someone that you know how they feel, it's like, you don't. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. It's it's just impossible. You can imagine how they feel. This is one that I struggle with a lot, and I'm glad that we're talking about it, and have definitely said I know how you feel a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think the place that that's coming from for me is wanting them to know that they're not alone and wanting Mm -hmm. to share an experience. And the time that it always comes up for me is when people share that they've had a miscarriage. And I just want to say I've I've been there and I know how and I know how you feel. And that's what comes out, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, and I am reframing kind of how I look at it because I don't because what it also leads me to do is tell my story, which is mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. helpful to that person right now. Right. Or it might be. But I mean, it's not my place to decide that. And that's centering myself. You know, and it, mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of the theme here is you're you're sort of giving the other person the opportunity to control the narrative or where the conversation goes. It's definitely something I do too. It's always my first instinct to be like, well, let me share my experience because I want, I want people Mm -hmm. to feel like, you know, I understand you and we're on the same page. You're not alone, you know? And I've realized, especially over the course of this year, how much that does center me and it's not really cool. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that 
maybe they they would be open to hearing about your experiences. Like I know I'm all, I'm usually open to hearing other people's experiences and I want to know what people have been through and it helps take me outside of myself, but you have to give mm-hmm. people that, that opportunity and help them articulate how they're thinking and feeling if that's something they want to do. And it lets them kind of take the first pass at that. Mm-hmm. It does. I'm trying to pull up right now as we're discussing this. I put together a poster for my office at the school, like empathetic listening versus dismissive listening. Like mm-hmm. what are some key phrases there? You know, like there's the empathetic listening is I want to hear you versus I want to fix you. Yeah. Which is more of dismissive, like that's a, that a person is a problem to be solved. So phrases like don't be upset or it could be worse, or like you had just said, Laura, like the same thing happened to a friend of mine. Let me tell you about it. Like that's, those are things that not, are not helpful, but ask, asking things or making general comments like, it sounds really heavy. Mm-hmm. That can be much more. What can I do to show up for you? Yeah. Well, and when you were talking earlier about the golden rule, what came into my head was like, that is scary for us to do because I don't Mm want to think about what I would want because that means I'm thinking about myself in this situation. Mm -hmm. And I think something that we'll see in this film is that it's, it's so scary to know that these things that we could suffer, these losses that we see Mm -hmm. around us and we don't want to think about it. And so my reaction is to think of a time where I have conquered something similar to put myself back on that safe ground mentally and say, okay, I've already gotten through this. I can extend this empathy now because I'm still, I'm still putting Mm -hmm. myself in that safe mind space, you know? No. It's a human thing to say all of these things. I don't yeah. want to us mm-hmm. to sound like we're like dismissing anyone or saying you're bad because you mm-hmm. said this. It's just when you know better, you do better. And yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, people have said things to me at various points in my life that irritated me in the moment, but I don't hold it against them because I know I've said similar things. You know, yeah, and right. I, right. we're all just trying our best here. You know, it, it's we are. We're just trying. I think the point of this is how how to do better. Right. Yeah. Comforting others is very hard. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's right. It's, it's a difficult thing to do. It's an awkward thing to do sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's hard to this be is... comforted also. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to be yeah. open enough, especially in those moments of grief. You can feel at least how yeah. I've reacted to it, which always surprised me is that I wanted to like be alone and I wanted everyone to leave me the mm-hmm. fuck alone. And I never thought that that would yeah. happen. You know, it's not what you expect to feel. You want to think you want mm-hmm. a shoulder to cry on, but I've responded almost with anger and with like, mm-hmm. get away from me, you know, and right. you, you have to no. give people time to work through those, those things and you have to no. give them their space. This is one that we're going to get into. We kind of get into the meat and potatoes of the movie itself, but kind of like rating someone's level of grief and why that's mm-hmm. a really bad mm-hmm. thing. Um, it's okay to acknowledge what someone's going through and, it's all right to understand that it's okay for a person to not be all right, Mm -hmm. to not be feeling well and to not know when and how that might change Mm -hmm. on the opposite end. There's like, man, you seem to be doing better than I thought you would be doing. Mm. The dog outside agrees, Um, (laughs) which kind of makes like the whole, kind of makes the whole grieving process when someone says that it's kind of like moving through like different stages at a video game and like where you are at grief is like the boss of that level. Mm. <laughs> um, the more or like the more grief you feel, the more you level up. Um, it puts it almost performative. Game. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Go ahead. Sorry. the crying game. Yeah, it's the crying oh. game. <laughs> <laughs> um, no more, no more. <laughs> yes. Um, 
it like almost puts like a performative expectation on the other person mm-hmm. and it kind of removes like the agency from them mm. because maybe they feel like I'm ready to ask for help, but oh, if I ask for help now, they're going to think that I'm not okay. Yeah. So like the idea of like, you seem to be doing better than I thought, like, yeah, you know, maybe remind them like, if you're not doing well, that's okay. Yeah. If you don't know when you're going to be doing better. That's all right, too. Well, and it kind of goes back to what we talked about in the Friday the 13th episode, that it's not Mm -hmm. a linear progression through grief and that a lot of times it comes in waves. So, like, you might be Mm -hmm. seeing someone at the top of their wave when they're feeling good, but in 20 minutes they're going to crash and just be a sobbing mess. Or maybe they did that 15 minutes ago and now they've kind of pulled themselves back together. And and I hadn't really thought about it in this way that it does kind of dismiss that and just kind of adds a level of artificiality to it, you know. Are you fitting into my understanding of what your grief should Mm -hmm. be? Mm -hmm. This is one, like, you can help by talking about the best ways to honor or remember the person that actually delves into what you know about them rather than, like, assuming what they would or would not want it. Mm. Um, don't tell the other person, well, they would have wanted it this way. You know, unless you have actual firsthand knowledge, like you did end-of-life planning with the deceased, Mm -hmm. then you might know. But otherwise, like, it's kind of insulting to assume what the other party would want at that point. But you can go to a friend or a grieving loved one and say, like, this is a moment that we share together, and it always brings me joy to think about that. It's always this warm thing. But you're actually diving into like actual shared experience with that that person as opposed to making assumptions about them. The biggest offender, I think everyone has said this at some point, is telling someone who's grieving that their loved one is in a better place. Mm. You really don't want to assume the beliefs or the faith of another person. But more importantly, saying like, well, this person's in a better place, it takes away the focus from the person who is suffering and it puts it back on the deceased at that point telling someone like at least they're not suffering anymore it's kind of like asking to look for a silver lining and the person who's really grieving may not be ready to do that Mm -hmm. like laura you had just said like talking about your dad and people trying to help or like a shoulder to cry on or you know it's like at least the worst is over it's like well for who like Mm -hmm. right people that are left behind like i know um when my dad passed away when i was 19 like a lot of people said this to me like well at least your dad because my dad he had uh bladder cancer for years that was treatable Mm. and then he was going for an operation that they thought like he would be home that night and something went wrong during the operation where he got an infection and they kept him in and, then, and like I remember going to visit my dad in the hospital and all he could do was eat ice chips. Um, and he was like crying and like, I'm so sorry I'm putting you through this. And like it was scary. Like that's my dad. Like I've never seen. Mm-hmm. That's not true. I saw my dad cry because he read us a Christmas carol every year. <laughs> and every year when like Tiny Tim died, mm-hmm. he would like get all misty eyed. And my dad, he, he hated engineers because he was an accountant. And engineers would give him... Um, multi-billion dollar proposals on scraps of napkins with ketchup stains. (laughs) And when my favorite cousin and his favorite niece said she was going to become an engineer, major in engineering, he cried. He literally, like, when she left, like, he was so upset. Happy for her because she was going to an Ivy League school, Mm -hmm. but also, like, 
why engineer? <laughs> my, but nemesis. my dad, um, no, my he went into a coma, and like for a, and I was at college at the time and didn't really understand what was going on. Like it was kind of kept from my sister and I. Um, and when my dad passed, you know, people were like, "Well, you know, he's not suffering anymore," and it's like, "Well, we are," mm-hmm. you know, like it's really hard to hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what it tells the other person is like, look, I'm not comfortable sitting here with you while you process these difficult emotions. Mm-hmm. Like I can't be here for yep, that. Exactly. Um, yeah. If I can impart nothing else in this matter, take the phrase at least out of this, your vocabulary when it comes to trying to help someone with mm-hmm. grief, what you're doing is minimizing the other person's pain and you're trying to steer how they should feel. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why are you so upset? Like, other people have it worse than you or others have gone through it. At least, you know, blank. And I know it's well-intentioned and you're not a bad person if you've said it. Please don't, yeah. you know, beat yourself mm-hmm. up like, over it. We've, we've all done yep. it. It's probably what we say when we don't know what to say. So give yourself permission to say exactly that. I just don't know what to say but I want you to know I care about you. Replace at least with that. That's great. You know? I think yeah. that's really, really I don't smart know what to say. And, and empathetic yeah. and great. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's all you really want is you just want someone to like acknowledge your pain and be like yeah. no- noted mm-hmm. and uh, you're not alone, no. but I'm going to give you the space to and, and, and control here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Yeah. We've got to get better at hearing other people and being empathetic mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. kind of accepting that, we're not always going to understand how the other person is feeling and that's okay. Cause mm-hmm. I tend to react with that anger too. And I just, and I think it's because I feel that burden and I feel like I don't want to be that burden. So I'm just going to get mad when I pick up that you sense it too. And yeah, um, it's all caught up in our, in a mess and uh, a tangle of not having the vocabulary to really discuss these things. It's not something that a lot mm-hmm. of us of a certain age were ever taught, you know? Right. So I, think, I think really the, the takeaway here is, is just, to to listen to center the other to center the person who is grieving and to not center yourself or or the deceased it's really just let let them give them space to grieve and acknowledge that it's okay to not be okay I think those are all the really important takeaways for me at least yeah because when you're centering yourself that's saying I want to still feel safe and mm-hmm. I don't want to admit that this situation could be me. And when you're centering the other person, you're saying, I want to help you feel better. And that's ultimately mm-hmm. what I think we want when we're trying to help people. But it's just, it's just we cover it up with all of these words and phrases that we've grown up hearing. And we, mm-hmm. it, because it's so scary to talk about these really vulnerable emotions. But, but that's Absolutely. how we get closer to each other. And that's how we move past So now let's talk about some of the specific ways we see grief manifest in this movie. Like the thing that I think stood out to me a lot, especially given the conversation we just had, was how badly these friends support Will and Eden and how, and it makes me so uncomfortable. And I think one of the reasons that it does is I see myself in a lot of what they do. And Mm -hmm. I recognize things that Mm -hmm. I've done. Like I've wanted to be the friends who are like, okay, let's just have fun and drink wine because that feels more comfortable. Um, And I don't necessarily think that it is all bad what they do because sometimes you may just want to hang out with your friend who just wants to drink wine and forget about it. But I feel like they just, they center themselves in this. 
and correct me if I'm wrong, it's like the first time they've all been together in like right. two uh-huh. years. The idea, I think, is that like after the event happened, which was the loss of Ty, the son, the five-year-old mm-hmm. son, um, mm-hmm. it kind of, you know, obviously it destroyed uh, Will and Eden's marriage. And she she tried to kill herself. And the fallout from all of this was, you know, as, as happens when you have even just a, a, a standard issue divorce, you don't mm-hmm. see the friends. Maybe this person sees one of them. The whole the whole dynamic is thrown mm-hmm. off. And I think we're seeing them all coming together and, and being uncertain of how to treat each other, kind of walking on either walking on eggshells or just going hard into pretending like nothing is wrong. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think that you see that right. that variety of reaction represented in all the different characters. Um, and I think yeah. even I think it's the character of Claire that even says to Will, like, I'm sorry, I wasn't there for you, you know, and I, I wanted to be, but there was grad school mm-hmm. and da 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 and all this. Yeah. I, I can't remember the exact, the exact, I'm probably getting some of these details wrong, but yeah, something she's the about only one. Yeah. I think, yeah, she, yeah, it was the tenure thing. I think she's the only one that even really acknowledges mm-hmm. it, that, that that's like what's happened. She kind of takes them to do as a sidebar. Yeah. Everyone mm-hmm. else is kind of going down the road of party, party, party. But even when she does that, mm-hmm. the way she does it, it's almost like like she's looking for absolution. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Like she's not really doing it in a way. I had put. I think it's Gina. I think it's the character that ends up getting poisoned. Yes, um, Gina who does cocaine. So it's Gina. Uh-huh. That's uh, how I. Yeah. Re- that's how I remember um, these characters. I have little ways of remembering them yes. for this. And Gina is cocaine, mm-hmm. and also gets poisoned <laughs> by wine. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Yep. She. Um, the way she does it is not so much as a way to like comfort him, but to like almost give a litany of excuses as to mm-hmm. why she wasn't able to. And she's looking for him to kind of forgive her for that mm-hmm. because she's carrying this guilt around. Mm-hmm. Totally. And again, it makes it about her and not about her friend. Yeah. To the point that he's kind of looking off and kind of zoning a little bit or like just mm-hmm. being kind of upset. And she's like, hello, are you listening to me? Have you, you haven't forgiven me yet. Hello back to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I found her to be very egregious in this movie. And I, mm-hmm. I got a little bit of that from Claire um, when they were having that conversation, when she was like, yeah, I got tenure. It was a year ago, you know? And I mean, I don't feel like she said it quite as like snidely as I just did, mm-hmm. but like it did kind of make me a little uncomfortable. Like, yeah, but he he's got he you know he's got he's other had things some things he's been dealing mm-hmm. with. Yeah, exactly. But the the thing that I loved about Claire, and this is a slight sidebar, but her honesty when she leaves is so refreshing to me. Yes, and really like made me kind of think about a lot of my. Um, like choices and how I like gloss over a lot of the times that my boundaries are crossed, you know, mm-hmm. and I, because she says this is, this makes me uncomfortable. I need to go. Yep. She doesn't yeah. say what I would say is, Oh, I got to check on the babysitter or, Oh, Oh, I forgot I have this or, Oh, I got an early meeting. She just says, I don't want to be here anymore. She's not rude about it. She's just like, this makes me uncomfortable. And I found that so refreshing and I think her character just kind of has this honesty mm-hmm. and she is the most empathetic to how he's feeling because she pulls him aside to talk about it she's like right. hey, just come sit with me you mm-hmm. know right she's definitely the one that I dislike the least of this group mm-hmm. <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, mainly because she does at least stand up for her own boundaries and, and tries to leave at a point where I think was like the natural moment where I'd be like this is a bridge too far I gotta get right. off the hell out of here mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. right I mean, like, I have been to a lot of dinner parties. This, I, not many, not, there's not a lot of snuff films that are shown, yes. you know, mm-hmm. you're not really getting that at most. At most, only at one out of 10. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and I wanted to talk about that video also because I thought it was so interesting and I was just kind of reflecting on it as a person who watches horror all the time. I'm watching movies about people dying and no, they're not real, but this one wasn't real either. And I was just thinking like there's kind of a, I, I did kind of appreciate that. Like they're watching this person die and asking this to be acknowledged and they're like this is too uncomfortable for us we don't want to do this and yeah it is really uncomfortable and the people who are dealing with this in their lives and have their loved ones die they can't check out they can't just say it's time to go home and I'm not saying it was right for them to show that video because I think that was out of the blue and a big boundary to cross but I was thinking if I were Will and I saw how uncomfortable everyone was with death. I think part of what I would be feeling is, yeah, welcome to the last two years of my life. This right. is mm-hmm. how I feel. And kind of like that. And I don't know if I'm saying this right, but what they're doing is they're inviting this reality of life in. And I think maybe it struck me as that because I feel like I do. I really get in my head about whether I trauma dump, you know, Mm Because I talk very openly about a lot of hard things. And sometimes I worry that I I do that too much and that people don't know how to respond. And I guess that's me going back to what we were talking about earlier, like feeling like a burden. But it just it was something that really struck me. And I just kind of wanted to unpack it a little bit, you know. I think that one of the things about the video is that like it's presented without context (laughs) to a group of friends that you haven't seen in two years and there's really no preparation for it and there's no asking permission it's like oh you want to know what we're into like i don't know like when the appropriate time would be but you're also asking this group right but you're asking this this, these friends to like also process this this very heavy and intense moment well yeah it's about a stranger yeah like it's someone they don't know and it's Mm -hmm. it is it's a bizarre way it's kind of like okay let's pretend for a second that their plan was not to murder everyone and that this was just a Mm -hmm. weird cult that wanted people to to reflect differently on death and the and our experience of grief and emotions it would still be completely inappropriate especially Mm -hmm. because for Eden, she got to make the choice to process her grief in this way, but by bringing Will into it, knowing what he's been through, and then just mm-hmm. shoving this tape in his face, it's like, you know, not everyone is grieving like you, Eden. Like, not everyone is, is grieving the same way, and you can't, I mean, I can't you imagine how triggering that would be, you know, if you're mm-hmm. in the house where your child died and you're, you're so overwhelmed, and then on top of it, you get, like, some random woman dying on a tape. Like, it's right. just, it's, it's a truly awful thing to do to your so-called friends or your ex-husband. You know, it's, again, yeah. it's, it's forcing your perspective uh, on, on this group of people. And, yeah, I, I completely agree that we don't have a healthy relationship with death in like our, in the Western, like, and especially in American culture, like we, you know, it's, it's very much sanitized out of our daily existence and I'm very interested in death and the experience of death. So it's something I probably think and talk about to an extent that a lot of people are not comfortable with. Um, but you can't just shove that down people's throats. It's right, terrible. Right. <laughs> like, well, and I, and- I do want to call out um, that Toby Huss plays Dr. Joseph in that tape. And it's a really nice cameo from that guy who's in mm-hmm. fucking everything. And I and I do really love the way they they did that tape. I think it's so right. darkly funny and like mm-hmm. and well, well crafted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
when he's he's nobody beats the wind. Yeah. He's the <laughs> dad in Halloween. Yes. He's like the clueless dad in Halloween 2018. Yeah, he got peanut like... butter on his dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and to be told that death is beautiful because of watching this one experience when mm-hmm. your lived experience of watching your child die, I'm sure was the furthest from beautiful. That like right. that's probably mm-hmm. not the word you're going to choose and it just felt it, it just I'm glad I'm I appreciate like being able to talk about it because it's something that really affected me watching this and thinking how would I experience it and then I was also thinking about it in connection to what Pruitt shares about his wife and how his wife died which was I would choose to leave at that point too because I would just feel really uncomfortable being around that person (laughs) that that story is one I feel so unsafe I think I do want to call out John Carroll Lynch because I think he is the master of being quietly menacing Mm -hmm. and his Uh his performance is Pruitt like um, he was also in uh, this Channel Zero uh, season where he's, oh, he's yeah? similar he plays mm-hmm. sort of two separate characters and is similarly like mm-hmm. slowly plottingly menacing and that when he gives that speech about how his wife died I mean I would be like I gotta go not right. safe stranger danger mm-hmm. you know it's right. terrifying what is amazing about that speech too is the way that it um he takes the onus off himself yep. he takes the responsibility yes. off himself He's like, I no longer feel guilt because that's useless to mm-hmm. me. And it's just kind of, he's like absolves himself of this really horrific mm-hmm. thing he does. And by doing that, he's able to, you know, if he can absolve himself of the guilt of basically murdering yes. his wife. That's mm-hmm. how I, it definitely in, murdered her. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Right. In an anger, just like, and he's like, in the way he describes it, I turned around and I punched her in the face as hard as I could. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a detail that I think like I didn't I didn't punch her. I punched her as hard, as, as, hard I as I could. He's letting this group of strangers know my intention was to hurt right. her. He's absolving himself of the guilt and the shame that he should feel that he should carry with him for the rest of his fucking life until he's dead in the fucking ground. Like, you know, cause yeah, I don't Mm -hmm. care if he did his prison sentence or whatever. I mean, it's just such an Mm -hmm. insane way. And I, and I did want to talk about, cause I think that that attitude really captures what is so perverted about the ideology of this cult and how it's, it's Mm -hmm. kind of, um, I think, you know, we had this little side conversation off offline that was about, is this similar to cognitive behavioral therapy, which is Uh all about taking, Mm -hmm negative thoughts and reframing them into a uh, more positive thought to the point where you can train your brain to not mm-hmm. automatically go to these really negative and unhelpful, unhelpful p- thinking patterns. And like, what is the subtle difference between that and what we're seeing in this cult is something I find really interesting. Cause I think it's really easy to take the wrong takeaway from something mm-hmm. like CBT mm-hmm. cognitive yeah. behavioral therapy. And I think that like this cult is absolutely uh, completely missing the point and it takes, it leads right. to repression rather than, healthy progression i i agree i absolutely agree i think you know cognitive behavioral therapy and like trying to change your thought patterns overall it doesn't say that like negative thoughts don't Mm -hmm. exist like one of the things one of the ways i work with clients using cbt is like when that and also that kind of ties a little bit into like things like narrative therapy um when that negative thought comes in you examine it and you do what I would call examining the evidence. Like, why is this thought there? What, if any, is the proof that this is a real thought that has validity mm-hmm. to it? Why am I feeling this way? There's, you know, and then I say, take the other tact at that point where you're now saying, okay, 
why is this thought false? Mm -hmm. How do I counter that thought? What is the counter argument to it? Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like when I work with kids and I would do these little workshops, you would have like putting your thoughts on trial and you would have the thing like, what is a negative thought that you as say a middle schooler experience every day? Like nobody likes me. Okay. Here's the prosecution. Here's the defense. Go ahead, argue your case either way. This is a complete repression of that mm -hmm. thought or a complete, not even a repression. It's like not, it's like you have like a, a force field around you and like that thought's not allowed into mm -hmm. that bubble. Exactly. And that's so maladaptive and so leads to the kind of uh, events that we see in the last 30 minutes mm -hmm. of this film. <laughs> it does. Yes. Yeah. And the way that I have heard it described is this this emotion is not useful to me. I'm going to dismiss it. Mm -hmm. And as I've been told that, and it made me feel really weak for still experiencing emotions mm -hmm. and not being able to just dismiss them. And, mm -hmm. and also as a person with PTSD who has repressed emotions as like a defense mechanism or survival instinct, like that was the, the, wrong thing I didn't need to do that I didn't need to ignore anymore I needed to actually like bring the emotions up which now that I'm kind of reframing it based on what you're saying Mike is what it actually is and I think I just understood it mm -hmm. as seeing a balloon and then popping the balloon rather mm -hmm. than seeing the balloon and looking at it and evaluating you know right, right. Um, because I just because in my Amelia's to my own experiences those negative thoughts and negative associations can become patterns that entrench you in negative in maladaptive behavior right you know so so like yeah. instead of mm -hmm. it's like you take that experience from your past trauma and then apply that that feeling and mode of thought to every single other thing in your life. And the point of what you were saying, mm -hmm. Mike, of reality, checking it and investigating it and interrogating it is to say, like, because a lot of times you'll find, oh, no, I'm just doing that thing. I'm having a reaction to a past event and not mm -hmm. current circumstances. And it's actually harming mm -hmm. me. So it's not that the emotion isn't is, is useless and it's gone. It's that. I have developed a thinking pattern around the emotion, you know, in partnership with the emotion that is not, that is actually harming me. And mm -hmm. I think those are two very, very right. different things. And there's a world of difference. Yeah. Yeah. And also like being able to look at that negative emotion and seeing like, yes, there are these little bits of validity to it, but here are the other aspects of it as mm -hmm. well. And recognizing like when I think like this, this is how I feel. And then this is how I behave. So, like you just said, so if I'm able to change that, if I'm able to just shift my perspective, even by a few degrees, and, you know, not disavow that anything bad is ever going to happen or that I'm never, I'm always only going to have positive mm -hmm. thoughts. Like there's a whole culture around toxic, toxic positivity, yeah. but we can, we can get to that at some point, but what we're doing is like taking that thought and maybe shifting our perspective on it, on it a little bit. And that can said trigger a new feeling and having that lead to a new behavior, acting a different way. And it could be something very little, like when someone says this to me, it triggers a very negative thought and I react in a very aggressive way um, versus like when they talk to me like this, it's just supposed to be constructive Therefore, I can accept it and I can have a much more um, positive response to it overall or more neutral response to it overall that won't ruin my day yeah. at that point. I mean, how many times have we had like one thing go wrong in a day, 
be like, that's it. The day is completely <laughs> shot, and then you're in a miserable yeah, mood. That seems mm-hmm. to happen to me a lot, and I try to fight it because I can see mm-hmm. when it's happening, and I'm like, don't let this ruin your day, Laura. Right. But it, it usually does. <laughs> but it takes practice, mm-hmm. and it I think does. that's like it's just building that muscle, you know, because, I mean, whereas, like, reinforcement builds the negative thought processes, like, the positive thought processes will start to build too. And I'm getting mm-hmm. to the point now mm-hmm. and it's a slightly different thing where I recognize my negative tendencies or my negative coping skills coming up and I'm starting to stop them and like shift to a positive, but it, it takes mm-hmm. time and it takes practice. And if you're just ignoring it, then you're not, then the ignoring is what you're going to start build. That muscle is what you start building. Mm-hmm. And I, I see like I understand wanting that like Eden in this movie breaks my heart because I Mm -hmm. so understand how she feels in that moment as she's dying and she says Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry it just it just hurts so bad this is the only thing I could think to do Mm -hmm. like I understand wanting to just pretend it doesn't exist and I think there's an interesting kind of she and Will seem to be on opposite ends of the spectrum or the seesaw I think with this because I feel like he is really caught in his now we also only see him inside this house which would be very triggering we don't see Mm -hmm. how he interacts day to day and it could be that he's further down the road to kind of processing a lot of this stuff and it's just being back here brings it all back but Mm -hmm. like his anger is I think the anger that I felt when I heard someone tell me, or I felt like someone was telling me, why are you feeling that emotion? Like it's because it's real and because I want to say it and because dismissing it feels like I'm losing the part of me that felt something, you know, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. making it not real or making, taking the meaning away from it. So I, I understand that too. And I think the dynamic between the two of them is so, interesting because he also had the trauma of watching his wife try to kill herself you know and he was the Mm -hmm. support system there now we don't know enough about how effectively he supportive he was but Mm -hmm. we get glimpses into the marriage and that it was Mm -hmm. a happy marriage at least before you know before the before the event they just maybe didn't have the skills they didn't have the vocabulary and the skills to cope with such a watershed Mm -hmm. moment of horror you know between them i what's interesting to is how the friends in this movie look at, you look at Eat, and I think Tammy Blanchard does so much acting with mm-hmm. her eyes in this movie, where her mouth is saying, I'm okay, I don't have these feelings anymore, everything is great now, like it was, I let go of all this useless pain. Her eyes are telling you a completely mm-hmm. different story, is what I really picked on up on rewatching this again. They're almost pleading mm-hmm. with whoever she's speaking to, like, Please acknowledge that I'm in, I I can't express it, but I am in a tremendous amount of pain right now. And can you acknowledge it? And Will's anger, you know, I go back and forth. Like, is Will angry at Eden because he sees her and sees that, like, she's not in pain and she's not acknowledging the loss the two of them shared with their son um, because she's over it? Or is he angry because she's trying to mask it and he knows that she's Mm -hmm. trying to mask it? And he just needs to hear, yes, I still mm-hmm. hurt too. I, I feel like he's kind of warring within himself between those two options. And it's, you know, and it's adding to his sense of paranoia. And I mean, I think at one point he says, mm-hmm. it's like, you're like you're out acting like he never existed, you know? And that's yeah. like, I, I don't mm-hmm. want to lose, like if that memory goes away and we let go of the pain, my, it's like our son is gone, like really, really right. gone, gone. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's and it's no. all kind of coming to a head in this in this evening. Um, yeah. And I was just going to say that was my other thought was I think Eden's volatility is uh, is obviously foreshadowing for her grief the way she mm-hmm. is with Ben, who, for whatever reason, she had some dynamic with him, slaps him in one scene. Yeah. And then in the next scene, it's like, I've always wanted to kiss you and then is making out with him like she's mm-hmm. clearly pinwheeling all over the place in front of her right. ex-husband right. And, and current her, husband right yeah <laughs> like, and, you know. i mm-hmm. read that slap as kind of when you were saying mike that she just she's pleading with her eyes i think that slap is a way of saying please do not take the veneer off of this please don't take mm-hmm. my mask away and mm-hmm. then i uh, you know right. if, as a person who identifies as codependent like maybe that kiss scene later is a way to reestablish that mm-hmm. like please still please right. still allow me to continue this narrative that everything's fine am, am i wrong but in the flashback scene isn't she kind of like cozy with ben on like a yes. uh, chase mm-hmm. lounge chair like it's like a very like yeah. it's a very flirtatious and yeah. affectionate yeah and i think yeah. we all have friends like that that you kind of like secretly have always had a thing mm-hmm. for but you just <laughs> kind of put it in the back of your mind <laughs> yeah right I don't know if I would do that in front of my wife. Oh, definitely not. This <laughs> whole friend thing. dynamic is a little weird. That's what I mean. There's moments right. that would take me out of the movie where I was like, really? They're really doing this, saying mm-hmm. this? Okay, well, yeah. uh, you know, but maybe they're just assholes. I don't know. Well, and this is one <laughs> of the movies where I feel like if I started to really pick apart the details, it, it does kind of fall apart. Like you were saying, Laura, it's a little flimsy, but I kind of look at like the broader strokes of it as yeah. like these, the, they're all kind of representing different ways of negatively mm-hmm. exactly. coping with this, that, you know? That's why I think it feels almost a little like a play to me at times. I think yeah. it actually work really well as a stage play where it feels more of these, like they are fleshed out characters, but they're also these kind of, mm-hmm. they're there to, to serve, serve the narrative rather than feel mm-hmm. truly organic. And like, you're watching like real, you know, it's, a, it's not in that style of filmmaking that like gritty realism. It's more, let's explore these ideas and themes through these characters. So, you know, right. I think I've landed mm-hmm. on appreciating it more through that lens mm-hmm. than I yeah. did initially. But It feels like the characters, like the characters in between Will and Eden, it's funny you say like as a, as a play, I, I put in my notes, like, it feels like the characters think they're watching a live stage mm-hmm. show. And that after t- it's it's like after two years of being like incommunicado with their uh, with Will and Eden, now they get like Eden's like strange new life on display in mm-hmm. front of them. And they're like, this is uncomfortable, but it's like um, train wreck television. Yeah, totally. Like I am. N- it's like not only can I not look away from this, like I want to look at this. Mm-hmm. Like when Sadie enters the picture, and all of a sudden, like, and it's funny when Sadie enters the picture, you see Eden's posture and where she's placed in re- relation to David. Like it changes, mm-hmm. and they're almost like equidistant from David. So as a friend, you're looking at it like there's some weird, and it's not even like a polyamorous thing it feels like our friend is in a weird sex cult Mm -hmm. right now and i feel like i should point out like this feels like a weird sex cult (laughs) but the wine is really right yeah yeah. do i want to just do i want to rock the boat do i want to be emotionally honest Mm -hmm. and do or do i want to see what the fuck is going to happen in the next few hours because i'm not expecting it to be getting murdered i'm just expecting it to be high drama you know (laughs) yeah like they can't wait to get home and text yes. the friends that weren't I, part oh of that. Oh my god! Group. Yeah, mm-hmm. and th- they're not concerned about Eden's mental state. They're not concerned about Will, who's obviously 
in a lot yes. of pain. They're bemu- the, the word I put down is like they're bemused mm-hmm. by it. Exactly. And I think that's what left me with a sour taste in my mouth when I was watching mm-hmm. a lot of their, I'm like, what are, why is this okay to you? <laughs> like, you know? No. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he like throughout the movie, he is clearly upset. Like, I mean, I don't think you would need to see him be upset to know that this would be extremely triggering and really hard mm-hmm. for him. And they don't, really interrogate that they go out to bring him back to the party and fucking David is even an asshole to him and is like you're not embracing our hospitality enough like mm-hmm. he oh, David really pissed me off in this movie um, well, in yeah. a way that I think is really effective yeah because David was manipulating the situation to try and get them all to stay but right. if again again if if this hadn't been a murder cult you know he would just be like a piece of shit <laughs> right mm-hmm. he would just be you know like a you know coked out record exactly yeah yeah well and what's interesting is because he i think they mentioned that something happened to his wife and we never really learn what that was but i think he is just kind of an extreme like representation of this repression and really kind of using it Mm -hmm. to try to escape because the point i think what they've bought is that they will, for in some way, this will release them from this pain and allow them to transcend and reunite. And I think that one of the things that's most painful about that video they watch is she immediately talks about who she's going to see again after, mm-hmm. in just a minute when she's crossed over. And I just think how painful that would be for Will to watch, knowing, like, he, he, how much do you think he wants to see his son every minute? Like, there's one moment where he says, I've been waiting to die ever since then. Mm-hmm. And, like, so, of course, that's something that's going to be really alluring. And this is, like, glamorizing that. Well, it's just mm-hmm. that, like, yeah, that is what this cult is really effective. I found that this is one of the more believable cult portrayals to me in, in film mm-hmm. that I've especially in like genre film that I've seen where it's like oh I could see how this would suck in broken people who are just not capable don't have the vocabulary or the, mm-hmm. the or the support system to deal with their with their grief like that's what this yeah. preys on they absolutely mm-hmm. and I that's why I think I do feel bad for Eden is just like she just felt she I mean obviously she's still responsible for her actions but she really is a victim too you know she she was victimized by this cult as is everyone that's a part of it Mm -hmm. except for maybe Pruitt he's just a psychopath yeah (laughs) he scares me (laughs) right Pruitt is an absolute like you said quietly Mm -hmm. menacing um he's a terrifying figure so scary you know the scene where he pounds on Ty's door when all Will wants to do I mean obviously not all he wants to do because he starts investigating Mm -hmm. and finding weird cult (laughs) shit Um, but he's like pounds on the door and is like we're waiting Mm -hmm. for you yeah as opposed to giving the stranger like the space that he needs like we're waiting on you yeah can you imagine if anyone was that aggressive toward you in a even less serious situation like I'm like what the fuck is this Mm -hmm. and he makes a point to like when they are walking back to the dinner party he's walking behind will because he's not going to give if will changes his mind like he's like nope like this is the path you're walking Mm -hmm. on he's escorting Mm -hmm. him there again um other quick thing i wanted to point out was like the assumptions and we see this with ben um after the slap Mm -hmm. scene where we talked about like where someone is in terms of like how they're grieving or the level they're grieving at. Ben says to Will, like, you know, you didn't go crazy, mm-hmm. you know, when um, 
when this happened to you? And Will says to him, I did. You know, like, I certainly did. And then Ben doubles down. He's like, well, not like Mm -hmm. she did. So he's kind of, like, measuring their levels of grief. Like, there is, like, it's, you know, like a recipe. Like, you put a half a cup in here for this person, but two-thirds of a cup Mm -hmm. in here. Uh, And it's just, like, a really sad thing mm-hmm. to see and then tommy and miguel like they just like shit uh-huh. yeah they really are they really piss like, me off at various points in this movie obviously mm-hmm. they don't deserve what mm-hmm. happened and tommy yeah. ends up being kind of impressive at the end but they've been they piss me off mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah they're talking about eden as if she's crazy you know this is wacko and like what you were saying like it is like kind of they're just an audience watching this but they're also measuring will against her and it's like you feel like there's a Mm -hmm. longing for him to have a shit together the way she seemingly does you know and if you notice one of the things i really noticed in the flashbacks is that he's clean shaven his hair is shorter and there's and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that sexy ass beard because i dig it um Mm -hmm. but um but there's like a feeling of like of depression and kind of like not caring as much about your appearance and whereas you look at Eden who is wearing this like beautiful white dress mm-hmm. um which is like it, resplendent looking like exactly and mm-hmm. everything is lined up perfectly and this house is gorgeous and like the birthday cake is like a, on a fucking Pinterest board or something mm-hmm. and it's like that's what they want him to be and he just doesn't he play doesn't, the game exactly yeah but they're also giving her shit for being that right right it's like you're damned if you do damned if you don't in the eyes right. of, this, of this group right. of people yeah. they just have no ability to process subtlety <laughs> i know and they're also like yeah we're all trying to work through it too i think tommy says that and yeah, i was like yeah like, tommy, fuck you, tommy i know like, i was like God. oh i'm sure now if they were there i'm sure that would be trauma that they would have to process but it is not the same at all yeah. and you are not going through the same thing that will is at all Right. All of the friends are looking at Will like, why are you holding back our good time? Yeah, right. right. Exactly. Exactly. And they're like, look, we're here to have dinner together. No one is acknowledging. Like, I'm trying to put myself in Will's shoes to like walk back into this home for the first time in who knows Mm -hmm. how long. And everything is different. Like that scene where they're trying to escape and he's like, there used to be a Mm -hmm. door here. He's not scared that the door is not there. Mm -hmm. He's sad that the door is not there. Like there's a note of like this desperation in his voice. Like there was Mm -hmm. a door here before. Like it's no longer there. My home is Mm -hmm. different. Yeah. Um, Seeing like your child's room and it's no, now it's an Mm -hmm. office. Um, All of these things like walk standing in the spot where your son Mm -hmm. passed away. Um, All of these things are just so heartbreaking. And you're seeing, you know, this woman who in the, in the flashback moments, you see that there's this tremendous mm-hmm. warmth between Will and Eden. You're seeing this woman who you shared a life with. And for reasons you couldn't fathom, like that life mm-hmm. was ripped from you. That love was ripped from you. Um, and you have to be back and try to process all of those things. And you have to process it with someone who's like, where's the good uh-huh. cocaine? Right. You know, like that just I would can't be. Even. It's so awful, right? Yeah. I, what, and strangers, and three mm-hmm. strangers, yeah, three lurking, bizarre weirdos. Um, how do you guys feel about Kira and how she responds to Will and her whole, how she copes with this sort of awkward situation that she's been thrust into? I feel like 
I was kind of thinking about that because she's the one we haven't really talked about. And mm-hmm. I feel like she is doing mm-hmm. an okay job of it because there is a moment where she does want him to just get himself together and come back. And why are you ruining the party? And how are you, why are you being so rude? And we're leaving right now because you are bad. Sorry, mm-hmm. that was some of my emotions coming out. Um, <laughs> but I do feel like she does really care and want to help him. And she says, like the conversation they have before all right before all the shit goes down is like I care about you I love you I I can be with you and he's like you you just mm-hmm. can't I don't know if you can help me which is a really honest conversation and mm-hmm. I think it's taken like it's almost presented as a breakup and I don't think it's necessarily that it's it's a conversation that I've had with Corey in some points is like I'm just afraid that like mm-hmm. no one's ever going to be able to help me you know and I don't think he's really indicting mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. um No, absolutely. I completely agree with that. But I do find myself wishing as I watched this that she was reading him a little more and saying, it's time for us to go. Like, Mm -hmm. this is not good for you. I can. Yeah, I I can understand why she doesn't, because like I can imagine being in her shoes and being like, I am meeting this large friend group for the first time and I'm meeting them in the presence uh-huh. of his ex-wife in their own home. So I'm, I'm in not, I'm not in neutral territory. Like I'm in not hostile territory, but you know, cause I think Eden does is very accepting of, mm-hmm. of Kira um, because she's going to yeah, poison right. her. Yeah, yeah exactly. I was going to say, why are you so, so accepting? This so, is a little bit much. You know, oh, the you, poison. you wanted to poison right. me. Got it. Got it. Um, so, and so you're with all people you don't know. And, you introduce like these three other wild cards into the mix. You're probably trying to process right. where you are at the moment. And you want to be accepted into this group if they're ostensibly Will's friends and you want to be a part of his life going forward. So you're probably focused a lot on your own shit yep. at that point. Um, so it's uh, to me, it's like it's completely it's completely understandable why she is like she is in that time so i you know here and i think as the movie goes on you do see her kind of step up yeah i think you're right i think she's just in this really awkward position in general which Mm -hmm. again like you were saying laura that's why i just wouldn't go you know i know i there's not a chance in hell if this was if i was dating this guy that i would be like yeah i'm going to this fucking bar Mm -hmm. sounds like the worst thing of all time i mean i I would be i would have really tried to talk him out of going again now i'm just telling you what i would have done in the fictional film which is a super fun conversation to have but i do think that i'm a little mad at will i think i remember feeling a little mad at will for putting her in that situation so even though she doesn't handle it perfectly um i'm like why would you bring her to this this is it's got to be like i mean i can't this is, i can't deal with it i think this right. is one of the other things that took me out of it a yeah. little bit i was like why would you do this yeah. to the person that you're dating now like can't you see how awful this is like if i could change one thing i would have made it like their third date it's like, it's right really yeah. go for it well if you see me at my worst you know it's yeah meant to be. well and they're celebrating a birthday like how triggering would that be as well oh, and i awful. think what i what I think is really interesting and I found myself wondering is I feel like going back to this house would be a really beneficial thing for Will and you see him start mm-hmm. to process things and like he asks to go to the bedroom and he like I feel like he's kind of letting his emotions lead him through this house I just don't feel like it's on his terms and that's where I think the problem is and there's the performative element and mm-hmm. I also feel like you would have mm-hmm. those get-togethers where um 
like your friend is being weird and wanting to do coke and that makes you feel weird because you're Mm -hmm. just not quite sure how to socialize yet and that's something that would be part of his healing process too i think Mm -hmm. it just is all it's like a perfect storm of bringing out the worst possible manifestation of Mm -hmm. these feelings what do we think about will's hypervigilance throughout the evening well I do think it's, I mean, it's, he's clearly experienced trauma and is, I mean, I think that hypervigilance mm-hmm. being a, a, a symptom of PTSD, I think there's an, I think we could have done this movie and talked about PTSD mm-hmm. and talked about his symptoms through that lens because, yeah. and I think that that's where some of the narrative tension comes from is, is his hypervigilance mm-hmm. a response to trauma or is he actually picking up mm-hmm. that they're all about to be murdered, you know, and, right. and you could read, you could read mm-hmm. it both ways. Yeah. I, one of the times that I did really like it was when he offered to walk Claire to her car. Yes. And I, I thought I did not read that as hypervigilance. Actually, I don't think I read any of it as hypervigilance. And I wonder if I was just kind of really putting myself in the shoes of a parent who had lost a child. And that's I would have mm-hmm. experienced that hypervigilance as well. Right. Um, but now that you bring it up, I do think like he smashes all those wine glasses like that's a really mm-hmm. quick escalate escalation now we Mm -hmm. see that it's warranted but he picks up a little detail um about the wine it's a very small thing but throughout the evening whenever they're being poured wine it's poured from a fresh Mm -hmm. bottle Mm -hmm. this is poured from a decanter it's not poured from a bottle Mm -hmm. it's actually poured from a decanter and it's a little thing he notices and he's like wait a minute this isn't this is not the unopened bottle this something could have been meddled yeah. with and this. And he saw the pills um, earlier in the night. You know, he's putting, mm-hmm. he's, he's threading these things together in a very quick mm-hmm. like, sort of way that it's where the right. hypervigilance becomes a benefit for him in a survival scenario, you know, mm-hmm. right. versus just being awful to deal with. And mm-hmm. we had a listener who commented on that before we had really even talked about or we had announced that we were doing that movie. She said that um, talking about it through PTSD, that he actually survives because of that PTSD because, right. and that mm-hmm. hypervigilance, which I think is really interesting. It just happens that he is right about it. But I think, I do think mm-hmm. I'm fi- as we're talking about this, I'm finding myself wondering what this movie would be if they were not trying to murder them. And just mm-hmm. like if this had played out and where David's manipulation would have gone Mm-hmm. And how it all would have ended because he is right. And it's kind of like what we were talking about with paranoia. And we easily, I think, could have done this for paranoia as well mm-hmm. because there's that are you paranoid if you were right? Um, and I think this is a, a really interesting exploration. And one thing I think Karen Kusama does so well is really plays with that you don't know until the mm-hmm. end because when choice shows up, that's yeah. like, you're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. You know? That's supposed to let the air out of the right. balloon. But what it pissed me off because everybody's looking at him like he's this terrible person instead of he's really hurting. And he, yes. he mm-hmm. you know, this hypervigilance happens for a reason, yes. you know. And do you do you think that in some ways this is a commentary on like Hollywood or Los Angeles culture? Because it's obvious it takes place. It's obvious it takes place in the mm-hmm. Hollywood Hills. David is like the coked out record producer Mm -hmm. that there's like a a, a performative or show busy or transactional aspect to all 
friendships at that point. They're not these like really deep seated, deep friendships, but they're kind of like transactional in nature. Like Ben talks about at one point, he's like, Oh, Will and I were in business together, like for like a a short period of time before it went Mm. under. Like how can we use one another versus how can I be there for another? Yeah. Yeah, I can absolutely see that read of it. It it feels like a very LA movie and a very LA group of folks, you know? Mm. So yeah, and yeah. like to buy into a cult like that feels, and I think at one point they were like, yeah, everybody's crazy in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, I also found mm-hmm. myself wondering if this whole night of murder parties, um, like the red light special, I guess, was just <laughs> like, it. W- if it, it was implied that it was nationwide or if it was in this section, and I don't think we, I, I that's left mm-hmm. up to the, the viewer to decide, yeah. but there- I would have a hard time seeing this kind of thing play out on a mass scale in in mm-hmm. many other places, you know, like this is not, I don't think this no. is going to happen in Nashville, you know, let's, let's talk about the end of this. Movie uh, yeah. Can, Cause it's, <laughs> it's real cool. I like it. It is. Yeah. I was <laughs> that was not, my, that was right, my thought topic. on it. Honestly, I was just like, Oh shit, that was cool. <laughs> like I didn't never really, I thought it made but a I lot did. of the, I made it, it, it was a good payoff for like, Oh fuck! Right. Like zooming out and seeing this, you're like, oh, it's it's even bigger than we thought, right? Because <laughs> doesn't give you a catharsis. Mm-hmm. Like you, yeah, like we talk about in the synopsis, how Eden shoots herself with the gut, which is like the most painful. Right way in to the go. gut, man. That's um, that's, that's and, ballsy. And she she does it for no other reason except so you can have that yeah. moment with her and Will, where she admits, "I'm in so mm-hmm. much pain, not because of the bullet." that's lodged in my lower (laughs) intestine, but because I lost my Mm -hmm. son, you know, those two years ago and I didn't know what to do. Like she's basically saying, I'm so sorry. And your heart breaks for her in that moment. And she said, just like bring me outside. Mm -hmm. And he does it. Like he forgives her in that moment for Mm -hmm. everything. Um, And that's a really powerful Mm -hmm. scene. But then Kusama pulls the rug and it's like, nope, not giving you this because now we're going to pull back and you hear it before you Mm -hmm. see it. You hear the sirens, you hear dogs barking, you hear the helicopter blades, and then you pull out. And I actually paused and counted. There's like 15 of those red lights Mm -hmm. on screen at the end of the movie. And you know that in like 15 homes right now, something similar is I just said hundreds in the synopsis because I thought it sounded better. Yeah. That was me. It did. I, I thought it was hundreds. I, I thought it was like implied I thought it was hundreds as, as too. hundreds. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. It's a like countless number of this shit. And, and we're only seeing a small section. Like you're seeing what the eyes show right. you there. I'm sure it's hundreds across right. the landscape. And it's so like, I think when I read that, now that we're kind of unpacking it, um, I read it as one, we're not off the hook, but like Will is not off mm-hmm. the hook. He has survived this one triggering evening and he's kind of he's still there but he's I mean he's got the rest of his life to continue and there are going to be other red lights that he sees like if we're thinking of the red light as a trigger like he's going to keep encountering these things and like I found myself kind of thinking oh it's like the purge like wanting to see the sequel of how they got home that night you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I guess and there's a movie that I'm connecting it to and I just cannot think of what it is it's like that yes we survived but it's not over and this continues. It might be the Babadook, I think maybe, which is another movie that's Mm -hmm. kind of tied to this is that we survived it now, but you have to continue working through this, which I think Mm -hmm. is really representative of what trauma is. And there's also the moment where 
they hug Tommy and I was thinking, okay, Tommy gets it now. Tommy now mm-hmm. has lost a loved one. He yeah. actually could, understands. Tommy, this is what trauma is, Tommy. Exactly. This yeah, is what yes. trauma is. We're trauma <laughs> twins. Yay, trauma twins. Um, yeah, the scene, I, I was actually really struck by the way that Eden shoots herself. And I was thinking if I were in that situation, I would be probably too afraid to shoot myself in the head. I, w- I don't know if this is too specific or triggering anyone, and I hope it's not. But, like, that seems like the safe place in the moment, but would ultimately leave to lead to the most pain. And I really was kind mm-hmm. of struck by that. And kind of what we were talking about earlier, all of the trauma and the, the physical violence feels very real to me. That seems to me the way that I would probably do it when it actually came down to it, you know? Mm-hmm. I also like that you really see David and Eden as not quite true mm-hmm. believers at mm-hmm. the end of the day. And that it's Pruitt and Sadie. Like when Sadie tr- li- literally tries to claw Will's mm-hmm. eyes out and bite through his neck. And Pruitt, who's just a cold-blooded murderer. Like they're the true mm-hmm. believers of this of this cult following. And Eden... In the moment, like, she's mm-hmm. shaken by it. Like, she's obviously... And even David, even though David does kill uh, Miguel in cold blood in a really great, great, well-lined-up yeah. shot. You just you know it's coming, you know it's coming, you know it's mm-hmm. coming, and then mm-hmm. it happens. Um, it They're still, like, not 100% yeah. on board. And they're like, what have we done? And I think that's a really powerful yeah. Well, because there's the moment where... Um, uh, David has shot Miguel and then Pruitt steps in front of him and like takes the gun mm-hmm. away and I think that's that acknowledging like mm-hmm. he is not going to be able to really follow through on this because it's too mm-hmm. much It's right. and like what we see Eden sees is like this isn't the beautiful thing you told me it was going to be yes. this, is, this is hard this is hurting the were, people right. you know they, they were ready to poison a bunch of people passively not like mm-hmm. shoot them all to death yeah right yeah and then you see, you see, like he Pruitt, like basically just hunts Ben yeah. down, like he just walks. Mm-hmm. You just you mm-hmm. see him follow Ben into the room, and then just you don't see that, but you hear the trigger. And I think of I think of Jonestown, and yes. I think of like these persons who were given the Kool Aid flavor aid, and it wasn't all at once. Sorry, flavor aid. <laughs> Being an Thank asshole. You. It was. <laughs> that's all right. It was like it wasn't like one wave of persons it was multiple waves of persons and some yeah, willingly and took I... it and then others saw what was going on and said i don't yeah. want this a lot of them were shot but were forced, they were to, forced drink to drink it. it or they were right. shot outright yeah it was i've listened mm-hmm. to those death tapes one too many times <laughs> i don't know what that's yeah. that's horrible They're horrifying. it's one of those things where i like Every year I get, there's one day where I'm alone and I'm like, is tonight the night? Yep. And then I'm like, play. And I listen mm. and I'm like, why do I do this to myself? But yep. Yes. <laughs> well, and what I think is interesting is David, not David, um, Will mentions like, I've been waiting to die um, since the moment this happened. And there's a great movie called mm-hmm. Eat Me. And I don't know if you've seen it, hmm. um, but it's uh, talking about a woman who's um, committing suicide or wants planning to commit suicide. And then she is home mm-hmm. invaded. And it's like, here's, here's his opportunity to die. If he mm-hmm. really wanted to die, here are people mm-hmm. that are going to kill him. And he even knows a way that it could be relatively painless. But what he finds is that he really does not want to die. He wants to yeah. keep going. And mm-hmm. I don't know how much of that is related to wanting to, 
to help Kira and having, but I mean, I guess you could say having made that connection with another person is giving him the will, ha, the will to want to <laughs> keep going. Um, but it's, it shouldn't it's, be it's, so funny to me, but, <laughs> it's, <laughs> um, but it just, it, it's, like we easily could have done this for suicide as well, you know, and that's yeah. one of the things that one of the visuals that really, really affected me and made this uncomfortable for me to watch was the when she is um, attempting suicide. Um, just because that's mm-hmm. like a reaction I find is not that, but like that I just will scratch my arms, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just, there's this feeling of hurting mm-hmm. so bad you just want to peel all your skin off, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just find Eden so heartbreaking in this movie and Will too. Yes. And we were talking about how like the friends, they don't necessarily feel real. I feel like the only two characters that really feel real to me in this movie are Eden and Will. And they really kind of represent mm-hmm. opposite reactions to this. And everyone else is just a catalyst. Right. What do we make of Sadie? And I feel like Sadie is, she's named yeah. after yeah, I was gonna, the She's Manson just pure girls. Manson family. Right. Like kind of like, no, she six, seems a little plot to me. Yeah, like, she's very like <laughs> right. I think that's the Sorry, one element. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I think she's the one element that I think I could have lifted out. And yeah, she but, doesn't really like. Besides mm-hmm. having a few moments, she, I really think you could cut her out of the movie and it wouldn't make a lick of difference. Whereas like Pruitt is really the one that drives a lot of the action and menace. Sadie just feels like we needed another mm-hmm. cult culty character to make things feel off kilter Mm -hmm. now she is effectively off kilter it is unsettling she is very it's a good performance you know for that kind of character but (laughs) yeah 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 because it's not too over the top i mean at the end of the day it's not what i find about what i what i i I appreciate about this character is what she wants is she wants acceptance Mm -hmm. like that when they're doing the i want game She's like, I want to tell everyone mm-hmm. I love them. And it's like, bitch, yeah. I just right. Please get away from ago. me. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. But but what what she really wants is she wants people to tell her that yeah. right. they love that's her. That's like it's it's a classic projection. Because I think yeah, that's like yeah. I love all of you. Please mm-hmm. love me. Please, Please love tell me, me you love me. And like Please yeah. love right. me back. Well, and right. there's the moment where she's right. making those faces in the mirror, which yeah, I a really, really fun moment. <laughs> it is. Mm-hmm. And I it just kind of struck me as like the performative nature of this whole cult is like we're we're not feeling these mm-hmm. emotions so these are what emotions look like and we're practicing our faces and and like her trying to seduce will um it, it like kind of made me think of another thing that you might experience in grief is just like like hypersexuality or just like wanting to experience some mm-hmm. kind of pleasure that's not really connected to any kind of deeper emotion because mm-hmm. you've had to turn off all of these other emotions, you know? Yeah. And I saw it in some ways as her wanting to possess something that Eden mm-hmm. had had mm-hmm. before. Like, I think it's pretty clear that she kind of, in, in the pecking order of David, Eden and Sadie, Sadie's yeah. at the bottom and she's a few mm-hmm. rungs down. I mean, it feels like David is keeping her yeah. as a house pet in some ways. Um, like a yeah. sex pet yeah. thing. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, um, I don't want it to be right at this moment. Right. I'm sure that it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but it is, if she can seduce Will, then she has something that yeah. Eden has had at that point too. And that kind of elevates yeah. her at that point. I also found myself wondering what, 
loss she had experienced or what her backstory was because we know Pruitt's and we kind of get a little bit about what David's is, but she's really just kind of a wild mm-hmm. card, you know, and knowing like re- reading Helter Skelter, I think I kind of projected a lot of those girls onto her character. Yeah. I was just thinking, I wonder like what she's been through, like how, because she does seem very desperate for acceptance or for any kind of like reassurance. And it just made me wonder what mm-hmm. she's trying to escape. You know? Mm-hmm. Well, so is there anything else that we want to mention before we kind of start moving on? Um, I feel like we've kind of really unpacked a lot of this. And I I think Mm -hmm. for me as somebody who just watches very emotionally, I really appreciate kind of this conversation is kind of helping me understand why this movie really fucking affected me um, and Mm -hmm. really kind of got in my head. but so let's let's kind of move on a little bit. And um, this is a really heavy movie. And I think there are lots of things playing into these really flawed characters. And we've mentioned some other ones, but um, we talked a lot about grief. But let's just like take a moment to mention any other mental health topics we see or issues we see here. We're not going to dive in the way we did with grief, but I just I really don't like letting things go by without at least mentioning them. Um So a couple of other things that I saw play out, we've already mentioned paranoia. We've already mentioned suicide. Um, And I think at some point I would like for us to figure out a way to talk about cults and like the mentality of following Mm -hmm. a a cult leader. Cause I think that's fascinating, Mm -hmm. but I also want to mention, and this is a little off topic, but we see it happen twice is kissing someone without their consent, which Mm. is like kind of a big red flag for me. And I feel like there's this, this thinking Mm -hmm. that, if there's really no possibility for romance or for it to escalate any further, that it's okay. Because um, Sadie just leans over and kisses Gina without her consent or without really yeah. even any warning. And I feel like mm-hmm. it's kind of excused because it's like, it, it's a same sex thing. I think a lot of times is how films will excuse that. And it's just not like, okay. I kissed a girl and I liked it. Exactly. It's very much like that kind of, again, no. performative. Weirdness. It is. Yeah. yeah like, yep. But Eden, Eden does mm-hmm. it to Ben, you know, and I think Ben is expecting like a small package and she's like, nope. And she pulls yeah. him in and he yeah. goes for it. Um, and he even says, like, am I can I say no, which is like this. Is it allowed for me to say no to this or do I have to keep playing this game? And it's like when we're talking about proposing mm-hmm. to someone in public, like there's this like, do they have right. the option of saying no? Right. So. Either way, like both both incidents are like uncomfortable and yeah. to speak some troubling things beneath the waters. You know, You're right. like, this is not a healthy right. or fun moment, really. For I mean, Ben may have enjoyed it a little bit, but you know, <laughs> but yeah, I, right. I, I, yeah. The kissing makes Claire very mm-hmm. uncomfortable. It makes Will very uncomfortable because it's not just the fact that like Gene is getting kissed by Sadie and Eden's kissing Ben. And it's just between them. It's like it's done in this really public and demonstrative Mm -hmm. way around people that are like, what's going on here? Like, why are you pulling me into your weird little Mm -hmm. sex games? And like, there's talk about like public Mm -hmm. sex. And if that's your kink, like, that's Mm -hmm. fine. No kink shaming. Like, God Mm -hmm. love you. Like, go for it. It, Consensually. Yeah. Consensually and not at this time. (laughs) Right. Yes. Don't pull other people into your kink. Right. And I feel like when it's a, 
a woman initiating it, it's easier to dismiss it as not a problem. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I I think there's a lot more we could probably say about it, but I just, I I feel like we all need to really kind of understand more about what consent actually means Mm -hmm. and how how it's manifested. And the word, like Ben may be giving consent, but he's not giving enthusiastic consent. Exactly, exactly. I think everything that this group does is to slowly push and push and manipulate you into doing mm-hmm. things that you don't really want to do but until the point you're so far in that mm-hmm. and and that and that is one aspect of it but it yeah, right. it's just their whole deal and it's repugnant yep i will say this about ben just because his character kind of comes off as a sleaze yeah yeah and he even mentions after the kiss like don't tell and i forget who whatever his <laughs> wife or his girlfriend's name is mm-hmm. and then there's that flashback where eden is very cozy with ben um when they're lounging together if the other friends were not there, I don't think Ben would care for a moment if Eden made a move. Yeah. Partnered or not. You know, mm-hmm. I think he would he would have absolutely no problem with that. And I don't think it's a, the fact that Eden has made a move that's made him uncomfortable. It's the fact that, like, everybody else is there and, oh, there could be repercussions if my partner finds right. out. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, because we know that his Ben's marriage is kind of the happy. worst. Yeah, I, I was yeah. not a huge fan of him. Um I don't know if I would have smacked him, but my heart would have smacked him maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything else that we see? I know one of the things that stood out to me was during the birthday or the dinner when he starts to have the flashback of the actual event where his son died. And I also Mm want to give huge thanks to Karen Kusama for not making me watch any of the actual trauma that happens Mm -hmm. to Will. I think it's shot very well so that we understand fully what's happened, but that we are not traumatized by it. And that would have been really really well, well made. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I say as somebody, I would have been really upset by that. Um, but we see him start to kind of dissociate and almost kind of lose track of where he is, especially with the same group of friends. And I think it's just kind of a really interesting portrayal of that. And I think we'll probably talk about dissociation down the road because that's maybe a little like kind of comorbid mm-hmm. to use the word I hope I'm using correctly with what <laughs> we're talking about, but not exactly the same thing. But we do see that here. That just, you know, you saying with the same group of friends, just like just like triggered something here where it's like thinking about the the instigating incident and because i'm like why do they have to kill these people like i understand that you're part of a cult and um a lot of times like it's a suicide pact Mm -hmm. and some of these things it's very much like a a jonestown type of thing but why are we pulling these unwitting party parties into it at the same time Um, and thinking that the reason they're doing that is because like what cause Eden all this pain it was the birthday party Mm -hmm. who was present at the party these are the people that were present therefore in order for me to really let go of my grief and all to really let go of these feelings that I'm saying I let go I have to let go of all of it Mm -hmm. I have to expunge all of it out of my life and that includes the persons that were there as well yeah it feels very ritualistic in that way like let's complete Mm -hmm. the cycle with these present Mm -hmm. parties yeah yeah, I wonder if there's God, some this, anger. This movie is so it, good. it it really is. Like it's it's mm-hmm. there's so many layers to it. Well, let's um, move it. Speaking of other movies that we think are fantastic, because I think w- we were kind of talking about how well this movie shows grief. Mm-hmm. Um, let's kind of wrap up by talking about any other movies we see grief manifest in this way. Um, we're not going to dig into them, but um, if you're looking for more movies to kind of explore this topic. 
these are kind of the ones that we see. And the one that I thought of was Pet Cemetery, which is a mm-hmm. book that I love, 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 but cannot read now that I have kids because it's just, mm-hmm. but I think it really explores, especially the book. I love Mary Lambert's movie, but the book really mm-hmm. puts you in the mindset of someone who does monstrous things to try to relieve the pain of losing a child and it's just yeah. it breaks my heart but it's also fantastic so did anyone else have any movies that they would yeah. like to mention so i mean you did mention the babadook that was the first one that sprang to mind for me i think it's kind of an inversion these movies are like inversions of each other um mm-hmm. you know in, in in this one they lose the child and babadook she loses uh, her her partner so I think it's an inversion of the parent-child dynamic, but equally about how grief can shape that group or family dynamic mm-hmm. for the worse and, and how one passes through it or does not. Um, I also saw Shades of Midsummer, mostly because they tackle similar subject matter, both grief and cults, but I think they're executed very, very differently and they feel mm-hmm. like very different movies. And then one more, it's not so much grief, but I just thought about it while we were we were discussing this movie is... Um, I think it's on Netflix now called One Bedroom. That's what, yeah. Oh, uh, I haven't one, seen that. One, one BR. So it's, 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 very, it's a very intense movie. Very good. Why don't you talk about it, mm-hmm. Mike? Yeah, I I love that movie. We I think we were the world premiere at Tell Your Own Horror like two years ago. And we, I got to get to do a Q&A with the director. And it was just fascinating. Like cults that are hiding in plain sight. Um with like a a gut punch of an ending that kind of expands it really blows up yes. the whole world it's something where like it's almost like they took the invitation and like looked at the structure mm-hmm. of it and said like we're gonna do it it, it is completely its own thing mm-hmm. um but it's like we can like structurally mirror these beats mm-hmm. very similar to what victor uh victor what um victor miller does in friday the 13th he takes halloween and it's like here's the beat here's the mm-hmm. beat here's the beat but it's our own thing mm-hmm. yeah i love that movie mm-hmm. yeah one bedroom I, I do recommend it um very intense like there's some moments in it where i was almost like wanted to turn it off because it's it's pretty mm-hmm. uh it's just a lot of people hurting each other but i think that mm-hmm. the, the overall story and the surprising way that they they, they really mm-hmm. they really do some twists on tropes that are unexpected you're like mm-hmm. you think it's gonna go one way and then you're like oh fuck and yeah it's, really? it's very very well done it's to me in some ways it's almost like the american version of martyrs oh. and it's not quite as intense as that movie um but it it gets really heavy. It gets really dark, and it's not afraid in any way to lean into it. Yeah, mm. and it will surprise you in a lot of ways. It's a movie with a lot of surprises. Yeah, it's got it. like constant twists. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's now move into our uplifting moments. No. So we've talked about some really heavy stuff today. Um, This may be on the heavier side of some of the episodes that we do. Um, And I'm grateful for that. But, um, you know, I'm ready to talk about some lighter stuff. Um, So this is kind of our way of transitioning out of these complex emotions so that you can rejoin the world if you're driving to work and you got a function. Um, So let's go around and share any grounding or self-care that's been effective for us during this week that seems like it has lasted 9,000 years. <laughs> and for the rest of a single week. I know. Yeah. And we said at the top of the episode, we, what is this, November 12th, I think? It's the day after the election was, a, was finally officially called. And it's just, I felt like I've been frozen all week. It's November 8th. It's the yeah. 8th. It's the 8th. It's the 8th. Oh, God. 
Well, that tells you how long yeah. this week was. I know. God damn it. It's like, it feels like November 5,000. It does feel like Thanksgiving should be tomorrow. I feel like this month has lasted a year. I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so just remember that self-care is anything that makes you feel good or helps you feel better when you feel bad. There's no one right way to do it. Um, and what works for us is not always going to work for you, but we think it's really important to our mental health. Um, and grounding or coping techniques, I feel like we don't mention those as much when we're kind of explaining, but there are little tips, tricks, routines, or practices practices that help us stay in the present and help connect to our feelings like um, taking deep breaths or like having a mantra that you say to yourself. Um, so does anyone have anything they would like to share this week? Lara? Well, I had a little self-care mishap. Oh. <laughs> when self-care goes wrong. Yeah, when self-care goes wrong. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I took a few days off work this week because I wanted to I knew I wouldn't be able to focus and I wanted to be able to just like move my body around. I've been trying to get back into exercising, which is the, the major thing that really helps offset my anxiety and depression. Um, and I went on a really long bike ride and <laughs> I fell mm-hmm. off my bike. Luckily, it was on a trail. Oh. It was truly the like dipshittiest thing one of the one of the top five dipshittiest things I've ever done and like a leaf blew in my face and I haven't been working out as much I'm still getting back into shape and I haven't ridden my bike in a while so apparently like lifting my hand off the fucking handlebars to brush the leaf away was enough to make me fall over and I I, I mm-hmm. sprained my wrist scraped up my palms whacked my hip and I have a huge bump on my hip my point is mm-hmm. that to heard all of this is I'm really trying not to let it completely derail me even though I literally was derailed I, mm-hmm. I, I had to like bike five miles back with my hands oh, like God. profusely bleeding and stuff like this and I was like well if I could tough it out enough to to do that um I can, I'm going to, I'm no, I refuse. I refuse to succumb to my innate tendency to be like, well, I can't do anything and I suck. I can't even ride a bike, Mm. which is all the thoughts that were running through my head. Like you little, you're so weak and you're, you suck at everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm trying to really not listen to that, that self-talk that comes up in these moments in which I do something really stupid. Um, And I've continued to take long walks. I've continued to stretch. And as soon as I feel a little less in pain all over, I'm going to get back to, I might even force myself to go on another bike ride just so that I don't like, you know, like have it become a a thing in my mind, Mm -hmm. you know, um, that's it. That's all I got. Uh, Mike, do you have anything you want to share? So I tend to be a bit of a news junkie, even on (laughs) non-election weeks. Mm -hmm. So this week was really hell. Like there was definitely, I remember on Thursday night, I fell asleep on the sofa at three in the morning like waiting for results, more results to come in from Pennsylvania because it would put them over mm-hmm. the top. Like it's what's, what was going to like finally give them the lead. And I got up at like 5.30 in the morning for work that day. And I definitely let people know, like I've slept two and a half hours. I'm really mm-hmm. hyper. And about one o'clock, I'm going to be useless mm-hmm. today. Um, but what we've done at home is like my wife and I have like really got, like what I was, she's British. So she already was, you have to, I guess, by birthright, enjoy um, Great British Bake Off. <laughs> like, it's it's a rule. Not usually my type of show. And I've gotten, like, totally hooked on it. So, but what it is, it's not just, like, the fact that it's a great show, but, like, we're on the sofa or in bed. We're just kind of, like, curled up. And there's a niceness and gentleness to this show that is so soothing mm-hmm. right now. So I've made it a point, like, all right, I'm taking my phone. I'm putting it in the other room. 
and I'm not going to look at it for a couple hours, and we're going to watch, like, at least one episode mm. together. And then when they're in bed, like, I've, like, you know what? I am going to, like, bake. And I'm not – I love to cook, but I'm not mm-hmm. a baker. But it makes me, like, I need I need to focus on being more exact. Mm-hmm. And it just allows my brain to focus and be present at mm-hmm. that moment. Um, so I'm like, this is why everyone's making bread. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. why I like baking. So that's long. why I like that show so much is I love mm-hmm. – I just love the, like, weird right. precision soothingness of baking. Right. Because mm-hmm. if I'm just cooking like a, a a steak or something or you know chicken, you can kind of mess around with it a mm-hmm. little bit. With baking, like you can screw it up so easily, <laughs> which is um, why I kind of find so, it stressful. <laughs> it's like eh. right but to me, it was like, and it's like it's not about like it did it come mm-hmm. out well. Um, it's more about the process of creating something. But I will say that I made like it like a um, the day of the election. Um, after I took my daughter out for a little bit because she was out, we were both uh, had school off that day. You know, like I made like a, I've never made a cake from scratch, but I made like a chocolate ginger cake with um, chocolate cream butter, chocolate cream cheese, buttercream. Oh shit, make me this cake. I know, and when is mine coming in the mail? (laughs) Honest to God, like you would absolutely like, push a grandmother down the <laughs> stairs for a piece of it it was the so ginger good. i love so ginger. i've been that puts it over the top for me yeah so i've just been doing things like that and it's definitely like at least for a couple hours a day allowing me to um not focus what not focus on the mm-hmm. election last week which was really yeah. nice to be able to do that well speaking of fancy british people i was watching another comfort show i watched the crown a lot this week and that is a real go-to for me i've watched it actually a couple of times this year when things have gotten like really stressful for me and i think i find how still it is um, to be really soothing and how like there really are not a lot of raised voices. There's not like, there's a lot of tension, but it's not, it doesn't ever seem to really boil over. And I can Google anything I want to know about this story because it's already happened and yes. it's not really connected to my life. And the same thing I think I've mentioned before that you must remember this podcast. Um, mm, I really, love the podcast. yeah, it just, it really soothes mm-hmm. me. So that and Cobra Kai, which, you know, we We've already kind of talked about um, mm-hmm. really got me through this week in a lot of ways. And the other thing I did was I wrote I would make bare minimum lists for myself because I knew like I I really had a hard time focusing even when I wasn't obsessively scrolling the news. I just my brain was not really ready to focus on anything like significant. So I would just write down these. I absolutely have to get these three things done today. And then whatever I got done on top of that was great. And most days it was not mm-hmm. anything on top of that. And then I just watched an episode of The Crown and then I came back to whatever mm-hmm. I was trying to do. And that helped me a lot. Um and I want to mention something about the election because after it all, like I, I saw this tweet by um, Tananari Du today, and she was talking about seeing all over her timeline after the Joe Biden speech that he used complete sentences. He didn't use any slurs. He didn't yell. And she said, we have all been abused and traumatized. Absolutely. And yeah. And I think like as a person who has been in emotionally abusive relationships and left, like, we're all feeling that relief right now of that, okay, thank God, like, this person is not treating mm-hmm. me like shit right now. And I feel like 
the next thing that's going to happen, what I've noticed of the pattern is that the things that really hurt us that we didn't really allow ourselves to unpack are going to start to come up. And the Mm -hmm. anger that we felt is going to start to come up and the hurt. And I think we're already kind of seeing that. And I just kind of wanted to say to everyone, just be ready for that and just understand that that Mm -hmm. is a natural part of really dealing with the, the four years of gaslighting that we have experienced and that that's not something that like the election happened and we got the result we wanted and now everything's fine. I think it's going to take a lot to repair. Yeah. We're going to be digging ourselves out of this four year hole for years when I say all this, I recognize that I have this real anger towards that. And we're being asked right now to imagine how we felt in 2016 mm. and expend, extend right. grace towards his supporters. I and I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm tired of being asked to lean across the aisle and extend my hand to somebody that won't even budge to it. They wouldn't piss on me yeah, if absolutely. I was on fire. The, the, it... And you can... Only lean. The imbalance is too much for me to bear. I can't. I can't be that. I can't be the you, the the party of civility mm-hmm. or the or you know. It's right. not about that. It's mm-hmm. like th- these people literally don't care yeah. if anyone besides them and their immediate family like lives or dies. You know. Right. And they, they don't. Mm-hmm. They don't care. Families mm-hmm. get torn apart. They don't care if people die by the hundreds right. of thousands that are like frontline service workers. They don't give a fuck. And yeah. I'm, right. I'm. I'm. I'm done. As as someone whose grandparents escaped genocide in Armenia at the hands of the Ottoman Empire, otherwise I wouldn't be here today. Asking someone to not demonize immigrants and refugees shouldn't be a political right. issue. Transgender persons' right to exist shouldn't be a, a political issue. Being queer shouldn't be a political issue. Being a woman in this country shouldn't be a political issue. Being black and not being shot by police shouldn't be a political issue. Asking that we fight systemic poverty by making education more equitable and fairer for everybody shouldn't be a political issue. How we get to those things, we can have a discussion about. But just someone's right to exist isn't a political issue. Yeah, it's not something that we can just simply disagree about and then go our separate ways. It's like that is a threat to me, you know, right. and that's not something that we can disagree with. Your rights are your rights until they bump up against my rights. And that's right. what we keep mm-hmm. seeing is the lack, not acknowledging that your rights, your claiming of what your rights are, are taking my rights away. And yeah, that, I guess I have the right to like set mm-hmm. your lawn on fire by your own logic. Exactly. Like, you it's know, freedom, like, right? Right. Freedom. It's in America. I get to do what I want. You know, right. I can't, I can't, I can't fucking stand right. it. And like when I look at that argument logically and in a vacuum, I want to be civil and I want to extend my hand and I want to be like after the 2016 election, I just kept thinking, I'm just going to be what I want from the other side. And just to have that smacked back down so many times, there Mm -hmm. has to be an acknowledgement of that. There has to be like a reckoning that we're the only side that's ever asked to do that. And when we ask it from the other Mm -hmm. side, they laugh at us, you know, and we were told, fuck your feelings. Exactly. And I think if there is something that we can do right now, and I might still need to process this, but like 
we need to start unpacking the way this has really affected us and we need to provide the space for people to share their experiences and normalize sharing experiences and normalize not being horrified by the how uncomfortable it makes us feel because like as a white person I hear a lot of these things and it makes me feel really uncomfortable and my reaction is well I'm not like that and I'm right. I'm I'm a I'm one of the good ones you I'm know the, and, yeah you you want to get defensive and it's exactly like, that's not the point that's not the point yeah right and that doesn't mm-hmm. help and that centers me as well exactly, we, exactly. And, instead of letting right. someone like really like, unpack their pain mm-hmm. you know I reflexively like when I hear um you know, yes, all men. Like I reflexively, the hackles go up mm-hmm. a little bit, and I've now like I really try mm-hmm. not to say anything because I'm like I know that this person knows that right. it's not every single man, but it's men in general. So it's like let me like learn from their experience right. rather mm-hmm. than defend it mm-hmm. at this point. I think right. I think it's that. always a good idea, almost always a good idea to shut up and listen, especially because mm-hmm. we we all need to acknowledge that mm-hmm. our our experience isn't. It doesn't represent the whole, you know. Right. I think mm-hmm. that's a, that's a, it's a painful lesson yeah. to learn, but I think it's spiritually and emotionally mm-hmm. and societally important. Because yeah. look what happens. Look how much pain there is when you don't learn it. You know how exactly. much pain for everybody. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so to wrap up, <laughs> we want to know what you think. Um, we really want this to be a conversation. And we would love to hear from you. Um, We've got a homework question this week, but you can share any of your thoughts about what we've talked about in this episode. Um, Our homework question for this week is, what is the most awkward party you've ever attended? (laughs) (laughs) Which I Uh, love. I think that's a good lighter question for this. Right, (laughs) for the heavier episode. Yeah, we hope that the wine was really good and not poisoned, and we want to hear about it. Hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So you can share your answers in our Facebook group, um, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group. It's private and moderated, and we have questions and prompts that kind of open that discussion up. And I just want to say, I kind of want to apologize to um, the Facebook group. I have really kind of let myself, like the bare minimum list that I was talking about making, posting a question of the day did not always meet that list. And I just really, I hope that that's okay. And I apologize for not being as attentive, but that's where, that's where I've been is just kind of really letting myself rest my brain a little bit anyways. But, um, you're free to share anything else that's on your mind in that group. It doesn't have to be super serious. I know we talk a lot about, about a lot of heavy things, but people post funny memes in there and it's, it's really nice. Um, and you can also join the listener created psychoanalysis, a horror therapy family group. Um, both groups are wonderful and really just filled with some amazingly supportive friends. Um, and again, private and moderated. And we really try to protect that space as like a safe place to talk and share. Um, So remember, our homework question is, what is the most awkward party you've ever attended? But you can also share your thoughts on this episode or this topic, what other movies you see grief in and your coping and grounding. You can also share with us on socials at PsychoAPod on Twitter and Instagram. And I forget that we have a Facebook page. Um, I had not updated it since our first episode, but I'm going to start I, I doing I didn't even that. realize we had that. <laughs> we do. I had just been so focused on the group right. that I forgot about the page. But um, And I also want to give my Facebook hack, too, because I, like, 
despise Facebook in a lot of ways, but I love that we have this ability to have this group. So if you hate Facebook, but you still want to participate, um, create a different account and don't friend anyone. I don't think I have any friends and that way I don't see anything but what's in the group. If that's something that you choose to do. But if you don't want to participate in Facebook, we understand that as well. And it's not going to hurt our feelings. And you can email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you want to share privately or just give us some feedback. And speaking of feedback, you can leave us a review. It only takes a minute and it really makes us feel good. And it's really hard for me to ask for positive feedback. And I always feel like such a goober here. But um, yeah. Please leave us a review if you can. <laughs> Want to do good cop, bad cop? Leave oh. us a fucking review. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. No, okay. no, that helped. Yeah. <laughs> I feel it. <sighs> if you don't leave us a review, we're going to set a red lantern up outside of your home. No, Ooh. no, 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 no. <laughs> Redact that. Redact it. <laughs> Redact it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it really does help people find the podcast and um, makes us feel good. So thank you. And also leave reviews for other podcasts you listen to because it's just a great way to share love for people that work really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so next up for us. Um, so excited because we have another comfort horror episode and it is on one of my absolute favorite movies. We are going back to Woodsboro with Scream. Nice. Ah! I know. Ah, um, ah. So I, <laughs> uh, I know we talked about this pretty recently, but we were really focused on Sydney, and there is so much more to say about this movie. So we'll we're going to focus gonna talk- on just just the first movie, none of the sequels. Just, yep, just mm-hmm. the first OG one. Scream. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. We may get to some of the other ones because those are some comfort horror episode or movies that I love. Um, and we're going to be joined by a special guest, Ryan Larson from Ghastly Grinning, and we are horror. And the Keep Screaming podcast is going to be joining us to talk about this fantastic movie and i'm so excited yeah Um, ryan is one of the genuine good persons in horror and like one of the things i really like about you know starting doing podcasting last year was getting to know people like ryan Mm-hmm. Uh, and being able to call them amongst, you know, call them friends at this point. So, and I actually think I met Ryan on an episode of the Pod and the Pendulum. So, was it really? That. Yeah, was I think it, the... it was um, fr- the Friday the Thirteenth remake. Wow, it's this yeah. really—it's how it all comes together at this point. It really <laughs> does, know. you know. Yeah, so we're excited to have him on the episode. Um, we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. Uh, they have many other fantastic shows, and you should make sure to check them out. You can go to consequenceofsound.com to find them all um, with lots of articles about music, TV, movies, pop culture. It's a really cool site, so make sure to check it out, and along with the other podcasts. Um, Mike, where can we find you online? You can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian over at Twitter. That is my personal feed. Um you can also find my, I tend to like post 50-50 at this point, and I mm-hmm. don't make a distinction between my personal account and the pod <laughs> of the pendulum account under pod, <laughs> pod and pendulum um, as well. You can find my show, the pod of the pendulum over anywhere you get podcasts in. Yeah. Oh, and I'm guesting, oh, by the time this is out, my guest episode on Halloweenies with Jason Goes to Hell is out. So Yay! Yes. I can't wait to listen to that. Laura, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Underalls. Like uh like the 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 petticoats <laughs> that are beneath your big old hoop skirt that Ooh. is pinned together 
by your corset because you are in the 18th century. Ooh. That is at Underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-S <laughs> on Twitter. Oh, boy. Uh, and <laughs> on Instagram at Instaglum, like Instagram, but sad. <laughs> and that's where I'm at. And also my dog. Uh, and I'm occasionally on Halloweenies and the Losers Club as well. Nice. Um, well, you can find me on socials at Jen Ferratu with two N's. You can also find me on the Losers Club and and writing for Consequence of Sound. Um, and yeah, just lurking around everywhere, being weird. And I've been very vocal and retweety on Twitter. I'm kind of like, don't give a fuck anymore. So, you know, <laughs> um, it's been Nor fun. I know. Yeah, it's been really nice. Um, so, yeah, that's where you can find all of us. And I just, we're at the sign-off now. I just wrote weird vamping. I don't know why I get so in my head about the sign-off, but I'm not going <laughs> to do it anymore. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. I know it was heavy, but I think it's uh, an important thing for us to talk about. Um, so thank you for, thank you to the two of you, and thank you for everyone who's listening. Um, make sure to watch Scream woo, for next time. And, you know, we came to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And, and we're all, we're all out of bubblegum. Bubblegum. Bubble but do they have any of that great cocaine? <gasps> I really want to do some cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> There's the bumper. Consequence Podcast Network.